I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 315. And today in the show, I'm joined by outdoor writer and whitetail expert, Travis Faulkner, to go deep into new rut hunting ideas, stand sites, calling tactics, and much, much more. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today in the show, we've got Travis Faulkner. He is a serious hunter and outdoor writer from Kentucky. And he's appeared in all sorts of places like Outdoor Life, Field and Stream, North American Whitetail, and a number of other publications and shows. And today, he's going to be joining me to talk rut hunting strategy. All things rut, pinch points, funnels, bedding areas, decoying, rattling, how to find the spot within the spot. You know, everything you needed to be doing this time of year to fill a tag. That's what last week's podcast was about. That's what this week's podcast is about because we're in that Super Bowl of the whitetail season. It's now's the time to get it done. So I want to make sure we're getting you some good info. And that is also why I've got a guest co-host on the show with me today for our intro because he's always got some helpful things to share and there's no better time to hear that kind of thing than now. So Andy May, thanks for helping me out on this one. Hey, no problem, buddy. Anytime. Excited to catch up because we've been kind of, you've been off in Nebraska. I was in Minnesota and we've been like trying to play phone tag and get caught up and haven't got to spend too much time chatting. So I'm glad we can do this. And you have, you've been on a tear this year. Um, we talked early, you killed that buck in Kentucky. And then yes. since then you killed one in Ohio. Then you went to Nebraska and killed a big mule deer. And then you came back to Michigan and you just killed a giant in Michigan. Um, so I'm curious if you could send like your lucky rabbit's foot or four leaf clover or whatever it is, if you could send that my way, cause, cause my luck is, is all out from last year. Um, so yeah. I need some Andy May, uh, good juju, please. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. It doesn't always happen like this, but, uh, you know, it seems like every once in a while it does. You just kind of, 
try to ride that wave for as long as it'll last. But, um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure it'll end soon. So I'll try to send some your way. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And in all seriousness, I don't think it's luck. I know that it's preparation and hard work and a whole lot of experience that's led to uh, all that success, Andy. But I, I do think it'd be worth at least talking about your Michigan hunt. Cause that was pretty recent. That was just in the last couple days of October. Um, and it was interesting because you texted me the morning of, and you said, this big buck showed up. He's in a spot where if a big boy rolls in, he doesn't live very long. I think I can kill him. And then like seven hours later, you texted me and you said, you got him. <laughs> so yeah. I got to hear how it happened. Um, this late October kind of pre-rut time frame. Um, really interested to see how you pulled it off. Can you give me the scoop? Sure. Yeah. So this is a buck that, um, I have a little bit of history with as far as, um, uh, last year I, I had some encounters with him. I had some sightings with him and, and lots of pictures and he was very, a unique, nice deer last year. Um, very identifiable, super heavy rack, um, kind of tight frame. I'm, you know, not very wide and he had a, a typical side that was a half of an eight. So four point side. And then the other side, um, kind of went up, uh, the, the brow tine on that side split. And then it, it, it sort of had a, like a non-typical look. And what I think happened was that during velvet, it must've got bumped and it just kind of grew sort of funny. It wasn't like a super freak or anything, but it just kind of grew non-typical a little bit. So he's very identifiable. Um, and he, started showing up on this property, um, right on that, like that third week, third and fourth week of October. So right that pre-rut time, um, he was one I was really looking forward to seeing this year as a four-year-old. Cause I thought, man, he's, he's non-typical and what, what's he going to turn into? He's going to turn into this, this crazy side, non-typical. I was, I was really pumped. Um, wh- one thing that was distinct about him as a three-year-old, really long brow tines, you know, they're probably six, seven inches, um, you know, a lot, lot longer than your typical, uh, buck in this area. Usually that, you know, good brow tines are four, four, four and a half inches, something like that around here on average, I guess. And, um, so I was really looking forward to, to, to finding him this year and hopefully hunting him, see what he turned into. And just like clockwork, just like a lot of these mature bucks do, um, he showed up in the exact same area during that exact same time frame, And that's something I've really learned to key in on in the last 10 years or so. I was probably 10, 15 years. I started noticing it. And then I really started planning my hunts for particular deer and particular areas using that strategy. And he showed up same area, um, just like he did last year. Um, it just, it must be his kind of breeding area, his rut area. So he leaves his, his summer, you know, an early season home range and wherever that is, I have no idea but he shows up here and, um, I was in Nebraska. Um, uh, then I, on my way home from Nebraska, you know, I'm, I'm kind of run through my head, you know, what am I going to do when I get back in Michigan? I felt a little bit out of touch, um, because I was in Nebraska and then I was hunting Ohio. I was hunting a big 10 point in Ohio and, and I had hunted Michigan some, and I had some really good hunts for some other deer. Um, but I was out of touch with just what was going on, what I normally, you know, I, 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 I say, I like to have my finger on the pulse. I like to know what's going on everywhere I hunt. And, um, and I just doing didn't... that and sorry to interrupt you, Andy, but when you say you get the finger on the pulse, 
what does that actually mean? Like, how are you actually doing? Is that because you're just checking cameras so frequently or you're getting out there and still glassing even when you're not hunting or how are you doing that this time of year? It's just kind of all of the above. So, so I'm, I'm, I, my strategy is absolutely checking cameras. Okay. I, I do, I definitely do that. Um, I get boots on the ground looking for tracks, looking for areas that are getting hot with signs. So I'll, I'll, I'll do quick walkthroughs through areas that aren't super sensitive, looking for rubs and scrapes popping up. And these are areas that I know a big buck lives or an area I know typically produces big bucks. And that's what I focus on. So when those areas heat up, um, you know, I can, I can see that by just getting out there and, and just doing a quick kind of edge scout, I guess, you know, I'm not, I'm not diving into bedding areas or, or real thick areas where I risk bumping deer because I've already done that. I already know where those places are. I know them and I know them like the back of my hand. So this is more of an edge scout. I'm looking for, are these bucks getting more active? Are they in the area? Am I finding a big track? Um, in a lot of cases, you know, there's only one or two mature bucks in an area. So when I, when I get a big track, I often know what deer it is. Not always, but sometimes they have distinct features and you, and you learn that over years. Sometimes it's just a big track and you assume that that's the one because there's not five or six of them. There's right. one a lot of times. So, um, and then the other way is, is glassing. Um, I, I do a fair bit of glassing in areas that are conducive to it. You know, I'm not glassing into a swamp that I have to walk through, you know, a half mile of hardwoods to get to. I'm not glassing those areas, but where I hunt in Northern Ohio, it's flat, it's ag country. The, the, the trees that are there are hedgerows and, and tiny woodlots. So there it, it pays for me to stay mobile in glass and, and just try to catch a glimpse of a good deer right at last light or right at first light. So it just depends on the property. Um, but I, I use all those above methods and I, I, I kind of do them all not, not every day, but I'm doing something every day to kind of narrow down my focus to a certain deer or a certain area. So, um, jumping just real quick, jumping from the Michigan buck to the Ohio buck, I spent five days over like an eight day period driving down to Ohio to glass before work. <laughs> so it's not far. My new location where I live is only 15 minutes from the border, about 20 minutes from the property. So I'm driving 20 minutes away from work to glass at first light, trying to locate the steer. And then I'm driving from there an hour and 10 to work. So it wasn't that big of a sacrifice. It was just 20 minutes, you know, five or six days over a, I don't know, 10 to two week day period. And then I finally located them and that's what led to that kill. Hmm. So, so there the strategy was glassing. Um, with this Michigan buck, the strategy was just checking cameras and my cameras, you know, at this spot, uh, I run cameras kind of two ways. I run them in spots that I can check often, check often, you know, uh, just into cover, um, around food sources where deer typically encounter humans or farming equipment or just more traffic. And I'll, I'll check those often, not every day. Um, it might be a, a once a week deal. It might be during a rain. If there's rain for four days, I might check it two out of the four days, but it, it, I'll check them more when things start heating up. Like now, and during the rut, I feel like I can get away with more because deer are moving more. Their focus is not so much on survival, more on breeding. I can get away with a little more foot traffic in the areas I hunt, but I still mm -hmm. don't go into the sensitive areas. 
So with this buck, got back from Nebraska. I felt a little out of touch with what was going on in Michigan. I didn't know what big bucks were around right now. I didn't know what areas were heating up. So I, I spent that first day back doing that after work. I drove, I hit two or three spots, checked some cameras, checked some field edges for activities, uh, for tracks and, and whatnot. And I got a picture of this deer and he had been on the camera for three or four days, nothing in daylight, but you know, within an hour after dark. So I knew he was, I knew he was here. I knew he had showed back up. And the reason I sent you that text is because I felt very confident I could kill this deer because he was so active last year. I knew where he wanted to bed. I knew where he wanted to travel. And I just know how to hunt this area really well. Okay. And, and the whole key to this, this area is just, just staying out. Really. You just have to have the discipline to stay out. And if you can monitor when that area heats up, and then die right in, you got a really good chance of it at the very least seeing that deer. And be, but because of the way this property sets up, you have a really good chance of having an encounter, like a close encounter with this deer. The movement in the bedding is pretty straightforward. It's got some pretty well-defined uh, bedding and, and uh, like travel routes because a lot of it consists of open field. A lot of it consists of standing water. So it creates a lot of terrain type funnels. Um, so all I need to do is wait for the good buck to show up and then hunt these areas smart, um, with the wind and watching my access. And then with, you know, with some luck, you know, those deer, those deer come out of the bedding areas that they've always used and they travel down these areas. So what I try to do is go in at the right time, wait for the right wind, wait for the right conditions. I like, obviously cool weather is, is good not a necessity in my opinion this time of year, but, um, you know, some cooler weather is good. And, and mean, the main thing is just waiting till they show up and then, and then timing it right and waiting for those perfect wind conditions. And then in this, this piece in particular accessing, you know, there's an easy access where you're going through dry land and you will bump deer and you're at least on that day, your wind is going to blow into one of the bedding areas and it happened to be one that he was in that day. I killed him. So what I do is I come in through the back excess and, and, um, I have to wade, I don't know, 35 minutes, well, about 30 minutes through knee deep water in cattails. So that's what I did on that day. I, I put the, the hip boots on and I waded through the water and the cattails and I got set up. There was, there was two, bedding areas there's actually three bedding areas that i thought he could be in and two for you, sure and sorry yep. can you explain yes. what those bedding areas looked like like what kind of zone were you looking at as a potential buck bedding area he could be in i'm just trying yep. to picture exactly the whole scenario yeah. i'll explain um so on the edge of this swamp and cattails there's an, an island Okay. And you can walk around the swamp on dry land and get to that same island and set up, but the wind would have busted you before, before set up. So what I did is I came in, um, on the backside, this Island doesn't have any oaks or anything, but what it does have is a little point off the Island where there's a really nice little thicket and some kind of, um, I don't know what kind of trees there are. I'm not good at identifying trees, but they're kind of bushy trees, like the kind deer like to bed under. Mm -hmm. And there's always, five or six beds, big buck beds. And it's the same buck moving positions kind of around that point and around that Island. 
I mean, it's been there for years and I've seen multiple, multiple, uh, bucks come off of that Island, but they're just not always mature. Um, so that was my number one. Um, the number two was about, uh, about a quarter mile away is this, this woods. Okay. It's just a normal block of woods when you look at it, budding up to a bean field. So when you go to that woods edge and you look in it, it looks open, kind of like parkish, you know, not your typical woods you want to, you want to be hunting in for mature deer. Mm-hmm. But if you go about a hundred yards in, there is remnants of an old tornado or some sort of supercell or something where all the trees are good portion of them are down and they're creating all this tangle and horizontal cover and let a ton of sunlight in. This happened, who knows, five, 10 years ago. I don't know, but it's super thick. Like it's hard to walk through. You can't see into it. And that's another area where the big ones like to bed. And I've had them come out of there before. So that was my number two. But the reason that spot is so deadly, it's kind of a, a fairly big woods, probably 50 acres or so. Um, but up up against the woods, in the middle of that bean field is a is a drainage. Okay, so it's this little creek that's about two three feet wide, kind of winds through the field, whether it's corn or beans, just winds through the field. On anywhere on each side of that creek is 50 to let's say maybe. 80 to 100 yards of like swale marsh grass because it's low it dips down the farmer can't plant it it's too wet okay Okay. so where do where do mature bucks like to enter into a field low spots the low spot they always enter the low spot in the evening okay so that's what they do The, the thermals fall down into this low spot and that's where they come out what what sweetens this spot so much is that this low spot is a swale of marsh grass. I mean, they can literally enter, leave that woods and enter into the field in that low spot and they'll mingle and rut and, and rub and do all this stuff in that little swale. And you can't see them unless you're right on the edge. Like if you're in the field, you're a hundred yards away. You can't see down there. Mm -hmm. It's, it's too low. Um, so I've had good luck hunting right on the edge of that woods, either on the North or South side of that swale. I call it a swale. I don't know what you'd call it, but it's a drainage, you know, it's a drainage that kind of winds through. Yep. So that was my number two. So my plan was to hunt number one. And if he's not there, the hunt number two, if he's not there, hunt number three, number three, I wasn't as confident in, but I've killed deer out of, out of one and two. Um, so I chose number one the first day, um, went in with my saddle, don't have a spot set up or anything. This uh, other people hunt this. So it's like, I don't, have presets. I don't want other people knowing where I'm going. And I went in and I set up on the North side. It was a, it was a, a Southerly, um, it was like a, it was blowing out of the South a little bit that day. So I, I set up on the Northern side and, and where you set up, you said this bedding area is on a point coming off of this Island and this Island yes. is inside from the edge of the timber and the swamp so are you actually right on the edge of that island north of it or yes let me explain that a a little more so this this island is on the edge of the swamp okay on the other side the the swamp kind of narrows down on the one side and what what deer do is they'll come out of the swamp or off that point of that island they'll come through the island and then back behind me is 
is is food is ag so it's a very defined travel route from this island to the ag okay gotcha. they can go through they can go through the marsh where i waded through but it's knee deep water they're not going to do that unless they get spooked down there or pressured down there um it's it's very distinct so what i do is i go right to the edge of the island i don't go on to the island this island's small i can cover the whole thing with my bow and i set right right up on the edge um you just quietly set up on the edge. I got about 15 feet up and you know, I, if he's there and he comes out towards the food, I, I got a crack at him, you know, within the first 10 or 15 feet that he moves probably or, or yards. I'm sorry, 10 or 15 yards that he moves. So how far do you think you were from the bedded from the bed when you set up? Probably 70 yards, maybe. Okay. So this Island is a little bit higher. It dips down into more Martian like swampy area, but the point kind of tapers down. So he's, he's, he's just over a little rise and he's kind of down the winds blowing the marsh grass, the swamp grass, everything's blowing. It's creating a, a fair bit of noise. I was able to set up no problem. Um, you know, on a calm day, that might be a little trickier. I think you could still do it if you're pretty good with your equipment, but you just have to move slow and, and try not to, make any noise so anyway i got set up without bumping him and the night kind of progresses I, I see a few does way off way off by the by that other woods out in the out in the field there and it's looking like it's not going to happen and then all of a sudden i'm kind of glassing down into that into that point and i just see kind of antler tips so i know he's kind of up and he's on his feet and he's moving i'm like is that him and then I see just, he turns to the side and I just see this really incredible mass. And this deer is really massive. He's got great mass. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's him. So now it's just a waiting game. The light is running out very fast. When I first saw him, there was maybe 10 minutes of light left. And he's down there. I just see the, the top half of his rack. And he's like, puts his head down. And I think, okay, here he comes. And then all of a sudden I see him put his head up. And he's in the same spot and <laughs> he does this like, <laughs> like six or seven times. I'm like, Oh my God, like seriously, just come. Like, I know he's coming this way, but he's like waiting, you know, he's waiting for like more security darkness or, or something, or maybe he's just waiting to kind of get a good whiff of whatever's around. But the wind stayed pretty true. It's blowing me into a safe area. And I just need him to come before last shooting light. So then he starts slowly making steps my way. Like a few steps, he's coming, I'm getting the bow ready. And then he stands there for a few minutes. And I'm like, oh man, we're going to run out of time here. And then it's just, it's those last couple minutes of daylight. And all of a sudden, you know how like you're watching a deer do this and they're kind of waiting and they're biding their time. They're waiting until they feel comfortable or feel like they, they've scented the whole area. And then they make that decision to come and then they come and you know it, right? Just on. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like, okay. All, all's good. All's clear. Here I go. You know, like I feel, I feel comfortable. And then he made that, I could see it. I could see his body and his demeanor change. And here he comes and he's coming. So he's coming across that Island heading, you know, right through the middle of it, basically right towards, you know, where all the food is. And he's coming right at me and I'm set up in the saddle. I'm set up in this big tree, um, pretty, pretty large tree. And so I'm on the opposite side of it. So I'm peeking around to the left 
where I can see him coming and he's coming right at me. I was hoping he'd come more like off to the side, you know, 15, 20 yards. He's coming right towards my tree. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be a really, really close shot. Now I know the shot's going to happen and it's going to be right under me and it's going to be very close. So I lean back to the right so that the, the big tree is directly between him and I, and he's already within 15 yards of me and walking. And I come to full draw behind the big tree, which was a huge advantage to have the saddle in this situation. Um, unless I had a tree stand facing the opposite way of the deer, which I probably wouldn't have done in this case, I probably would have been faced off to the right or faced directly at him. Um, it would have been really hard to come to full draw because I wasn't that high. I didn't want to get super duper high. Um, cause the canopy wasn't real high. It was a little lower. Um, but with the saddle, I was able to literally just just kind of swing back behind the tree so that the tree blocked me blocked me from his vision and I came to full draw and then I just slowly swung back around and creeped around by the time I creeped back around he was at five yards Jeez. like right under my tree and he was he was quartering to me just a little and he was starting to smell around which I thought was incredible because he hadn't even crossed my path yet but he he wasn't locked up but he was like almost like he was sensing something uh-huh. And I was like, oh man, like, come on. Like I purposely, I did have to walk through the center of, uh, like there's, there's pretty much two trails that looked like they were kind of coming out off through that Island. I did have to cross those trails to get to the tree I was in because of the way I was playing the wind. Do you get me? Mm -hmm. I follow. Okay. So, but what I tried to do is I tried to make sure I crossed them where, I would already have a shot at that deer beforehand. Like if he was coming down those trails, I'd have a shot before he would cross my boot trail yep. is what, what I tried to do. Yep. So, but he's, he's starting to sniff like he smells me before he even gets to my track. Like, like, like 10 feet before. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, is he smelling? You know, like he's going to, he's going to bust. But I just was patient and I said, I'm not going to take that shot. He's quartering to Well, then he just kind of slowly starts creeping forward. He turns a little more broadside. I put the pin right, you know, kind of high on his back. It's like a, almost like a, not straight down, but it's a, it's a steep angle shot. Not, not ideal, but with broadside, um, you know, it's not too bad. It's, it's, it's a lot harder when they're right under the tree. A lot of times you'll get that one long, but he was out about five, six yards and I could get just that angle. If I go just under the spine, I'm going to, I'm going to get him good. So I put the pin there, I shoot and I see that, um, the lighted knock Barry, like up to the fletching and he takes off and it was, it was dark enough where I just, you know, it just wasn't sure. Like I, I said, I think that shot's great, but it was high, but it's supposed to be high because of the angle. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but it is just like, if he was out 30 yards and I hit him there, I'd be a little worried. Yeah. But, but he was so close. So I, I felt I felt pretty good. Texted my buddy Mike to come out and help me. Um, when he ran off, I did hear him go through some brush. But then I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear a crash or anything. And I was like, oh, man, I should have heard a crash. Kind of starting to stress out a little bit. And then long story short, we give him a couple hours just to be safe. Uh, buddy shows up. We start walking out there. And we come around the dry side so we don't have to wade through the water. I was like, well, let's, you know, we're not, who cares if we bump anything now? Let's just walk the dry side. And we come walking down and we're 
we're kind of getting somewhat close to uh, where the shot happened. And I kind of look to my left. It's pitch dark. We don't even have any lights on. And I go, what's that? Shine your light over there. <laughs> and uh, he shines his light over there. And he was laying dead right there. Jeez. So, so he only went he only went about 60 yards. It was a, it was a good double lung shot. Um, and we walked up to him. And he was... He was even bigger than what I thought he was, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, his mass in trail cam pictures and stuff, it's kind of hard to identify mass. Like sometimes when you get like a real palmated one, you know he's heavy. Um, but you couldn't really tell that with this buck. Um, but his his beams are just so heavy. That's the best part about him. And the, the tall brow tines. His brow tines have, had grown a lot from the year prior. But Yeah, he's super cool. Yeah, so – so I, I didn't, wasn't trying to sound cocky or anything when I said, I think I got a good chance of this deer. It, it, it's, it's because he showed up where he did in this yeah. area. It's very clear, very distinct lines of travel, very straightforward on how to hunt it. If you can stay out, which a lot of people can't, you know, if they, you know, if they have trouble staying out until things kind of heat up, you know, yeah. if I would have been hunting that Island and hunting this other spot, before he was there, before the activity picked up, probably wouldn't have helped my cause. Yeah. So trail camera played a big role in this one. Really, really interesting to hear how you played it and how you you waited for the right time, made the move, understood the property well enough that you knew where those top spots were, and then had the plan to go in one, two, three, and that's cool it was really cool to see it all come together when you texted me that morning i was like uh oh that, that buck better watch out <laughs> and sure enough that's uh that's what the case was so yeah before um before i let you go andy when this podcast drops it's gonna be november six or seven so people will be you know right in the midst of it um yeah november 7th so one or two quick just rut hunting rules from Andy May, your couple pieces of wisdom for people hunting this next week or so? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I'll start off by saying this is this is probably my least favorite time to hunt uh, when I'm after a particular deer. But if you're not after, it's really hard to pattern them down. Um, the, the movements become much more kind of all over the place. But if you're just looking for a, a nice deer or, or any mature buck it's it's a great time um i'll say this my favorite areas typically uh depending on where where i'm hunting i like to be on i like to know where doe groups bed um they usually kind of stay pretty similar throughout the fall and i like to i like to play around the the downwind sides of those i've had great luck with that and it's a great spot to sit all day um at least until um at least until like that three o'clock time frame, Okay. At least till then, because what happens is those does will come back to bed. Sometimes, uh, sometimes you'll get bucks kind of cruising that downwind side early in the morning. But, but my favorite time during the rut is like that mid morning, like that nine o'clock to noon, um, seems to be a really great time for that, that type of scenario. Um, definitely, um, definitely if you can hunt all day, if you're in that type of situation, at least until three or four o'clock, if, if once the evening hours hit like the afternoon, if you want to move to something more, maybe kind of towards a food source or something where there's uh, you could kind of get into the cover a little bit, but on the way to a food source, that's not a bad idea. Um, 
the evening sits tend to be a little slower on the downwind sides of doe bedding area once the does start to leave. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one. Um, the other one I like is just your, your basic funnel between doe, uh, between doe bedding areas. So I see this a lot in like river bottom ground. Um, sometimes you'll get it like in ag country where, uh, you know, you got a woodlot here that holds deer and then you got a, a, a marsh here that holds deer. And then there's some sort of strip of cover that connects the two or maybe just two woodlots that, that typically hold does. Um, those are great spots. Those are again, great spots to sit all day, at least through that, at least through that 11 to three time frame. I've, I've killed, I can't tell you how many big bucks I've killed in midday. It's my favorite time of day during the rut. And I've killed some really old, including my biggest, my, my big 172 was, was at three, three in the afternoon. So maybe not exactly midday, but still plenty early. Um, but a lot in that 11 to two range. Um, I really like that time frame. And if you're, if you're hunting either of those spots, definitely sit through that time frame. You can sit there the rest of the night. Um, but you might be better off moving towards something a little more related to food for yeah. that afternoon. I don't always do that. Sometimes I camp out all day cause I really don't like leaving and then moving in, um, to a new, new spot, but I will do that if I don't think the evening is going to be productive. Um, and then another tip is you're going to start to see the big mature bucks. A lot of times you'll see them for the first time and they're going to be locked down with a doe. Um, they usually pick up the first doe or two that's in heat. When you see that you have a short window, you have a, a anywhere from like, a uh, depending on when you first see him, if he, did he just, uh, just lock up with that doe or has he been with her for a day? Mm-hmm. You usually got like one to at the very most three days yeah. that he's going to be with that doe. And you can almost count that he's going to be in that area. Okay. So what, what I've had good luck with doing is when I see that I usually, a lot of times will get out of the tree and I will move closer and I will set up as close as possible, um, to where that action is. And if you can, if it's a, a scenario where you can see and observe like, um, uh, CRP type ground or marsh type ground or, or, you know, kind of scrub brush, that's all the better because then you, you'll be able to see this buck kind of pushing this doe around or the doe kind of moving around naturally. And he's just following her and his, he's occupied. This is your time to dive in. If you want that particular deer to get in tight. And I've been really aggressive when I see them locked down like that. And I'm able to get in really close within a hundred yards sometimes closer. And then, and then it's just a matter of like waiting for him to make a mistake, waiting for that doe to come a little closer or when they're preoccupied looking away, you can sneak in and crawl in a little closer. That this is another good, good, uh, uh, you know, plug for a saddle. Um, you know, if you have something to get up in a tree and you're wearing that saddle, that's perfect tool in that type of scenario. But if you see that and you're sitting 200 yards away, get down and move closer if you can, if you have that ability to stay mobile. Um, and at the very, very least move into that area the next day and you, and you're in the game, they're going to be in that area that, that, that buck will not let that doe go too far. And the only way I've seen, um, when one's locked down with a doe, the only time I've seen uh, a buck move an area like more than like two or 300 yards is when another buck comes in and tries to tries to you know interfere with that that breeding process that buck 
the big buck, the more mature buck will meet and, and, uh, chase that other buck off. And then I've seen the doe take off. Yep. So I've seen the doe take off like two, 300 yards and and now they're in a different area, yep. but that's, I've seen that happen multiple times. I saw that in Iowa on a big buck, um, that I ended up shooting. Luckily this other buck came across the CRP field. The buck I was hunting challenged that buck. The doe came running right by me. And then once that buck chased that other one off, he came, he came right by me and I got a shot. So nice when that happens. Yeah. Those are, those are probably some tips that I'd, I'd try to keep in mind, you know, during the rut and, uh, you know, just put in a lot of times it's just putting in time out in the tree, you know, and don't overlook that, that midday time frame. Yeah. Good stuff, my friend. Good stuff. I appreciate you taking a little time to help us introduce this episode with your story and some quick tips. Um, at this point we're recording this on Halloween. So about a week before this podcast will go out, I, I still haven't had my rut success, but hoping that'll change here soon. And, uh, Maybe we'll be able to chat again here with a couple more success stories in the in a matter of days. All right, buddy. Sounds good. All right. We're going to now flip it over to my chat with Travis Faulkner with a whole lot more rut hunting info and stick around for a deer hunting joke at the end. It's worth the wait. <laughs> We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. All right, before moving on, though, we need to thank our friends over at First Light. And I'm out there hunting the whitetail rut right now, and here's what I'm wearing. I'm wearing a couple different sets of their base layers depending on how cold it is. If it's really cold, I'm wearing their furnace. That's the 350-level base layers. If it's warmer, I'm running their 150 or 250-layer base layers. Then on the bottoms, the next thing I add would be straight to the main piece, which is the Solitude bibs. 
on the top. I'm going to be wearing those base layers I just mentioned. Then I'm going to throw on top the clay math hoodie. If it's super duper cold, I might layer a vest or something like the Brooks jacket, which is a really lightweight down sweater. And then finally over top is going to be the solitude jacket. Uh, and of course, going to throw on a beanie, some gloves, and then I'm ready to rock and roll. If you want to learn more about that system or any other stuff out there that First Light has out to offer, you can go to firstlight.com. And while we're at it, also want to thank Lacrosse. And I've been telling you about the new Navigator series, their new lace-up boots. I've been testing them for the last, I don't know, three weeks now. I took them on that Minnesota Boundary Waters hunt. That was my main boot, and it worked great. I mean, that was the ideal type of boot to have for that hunt because I wanted something super comfortable for hiking all over the place. We were going up and down these big rocky ridges, hiking all over the place. They're comfortable. They were waterproof when I had to get in and out of the canoe, and uh, I have no complaints. So check out the Windrose by Lacrosse. That's the one I was running, and uh, two thumbs up. All right, with me now on the line is Travis Faulkner. Welcome to the show, Travis. Good to be here, man. I really appreciate it. Like we were just saying before we started recording, this is a real busy time for folks. So I know it's no small thing to carve out the time uh, out of the tree stand to chat. So thanks. Yeah, it's like I said, it's time to be in the woods and not on the phone. So yep. I put the phone's away and get in the woods, but you know, I always like to take time to talk a little deer hunt. So we're, you know, we're good to go on that. Good. Well, uh, for all those that maybe aren't familiar with who you are yet, could you give us just a quick Cliff Notes intro on who you are, what you do in the hunting world? Yeah, I'm Travis Faulkner. I'm an outdoor rider. Um, I also teach school, and and uh, I don't, I can't even remember how long I've been riding for the outdoor magazines and stuff. I write for a little bit of everybody, like Outdoor Life and Film Stream, North American Whitetail, uh, Turkey Country, you know, magazines like that. And uh, I grew up in the mountains of southeastern Kentucky, Appalachian Mountains, and uh, you know, like most boys around here, I grew up in you know in the outdoors. My dad, you know, practically carried me around in the woods before I was even able to walk, you know, on squirrel hunts and stuff. And I was fortunate enough to know my grandfather growing up. And, you know, those two guys are not only taught me a lot, you know, in the woods, they taught me a lot, you know, about life, you know, through taking me hunting and fishing and, and whatnot. And uh, I've just pretty much lived my life, you know, in, in the woods and on the lake. And, and uh, you know, fortunately, I was able to, you know, kind of make a career out of it with my riding and stuff. And, you know, making appearances on shows on the outdoor channel, shooting videos and stuff like that. You know, that's what I that's what I live to do. Yeah, it's it's a it's a real fulfilling and fun way to make a living, that's for sure. Um, yeah, it doesn't feel like work. Right. <laughs> that's we're, uh, we're pretty lucky to be able to do it, that's for sure. Yeah. Um you mentioned squirrel hunting and I was actually just reading a, a pretty recent piece of yours. And you were talking about maybe it was your dad or or some other friend of yours who said that the best way to get good at deer hunting is to be a squirrel hunter. Yep, um, I tell you, my dad and my grandfather said that, and also um, Harold Knight or Knight Hill, you know, told me that how many times he he said, you know, if you uh, squirrel hunt is pretty much the foundation. And uh, sad thing today is a lot of kids are it's. I don't know necessarily sad, but a lot of kids just jump right into the deer hunting and turkey hunting because the deer and turkey are so plentiful now. Whereas, you know, when I was a kid and some of the older generation, when they were growing up, there just weren't a lot of deer and there were zero turkeys. So we, you know, we squirrel hunted and rabbit hunted and, and of course we deer hunted back then, but it, it was a world of difference between now and then. You know, back in those days, if, if you seen a doe, you were calling your friend, you know, telling them about it. if you seen tracks. I mean, it just, we didn't have the numbers that we have today. Wow. And, and that's, um, 
kind of a good and a bad thing. The good thing about that is, is there are fewer deer and whatnot. You really had to, you really had to know your stuff. You had to be able to scout and 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 know what to do and and be able to find sign and know how to react to that sign and and uh, you know it really made you a better deer hunter. But uh, going back to the squirrel hunting part, I mean, I, I, I strongly believe with those guys that, you know, squirrel hunting is the foundation because that's where you, you learn your woodsmanship skills at, you know, how to identify the different mass trees, uh, how to be quiet, how to disappear in your surroundings, uh, reading an animal's body language, reading sign, uh, sneaking through the woods, all that stuff, you know, you learn from squirrel hunting. Yeah. I, I, I was one of those kids who didn't get into squirrel hunting. I wish I had, I, I shot squirrels, but it was kind of, you know, sit behind the house and you want to shoot something as a kid. And so I did that, but I never took it serious. And I wish I had, um, probably would have learned a few important things earlier than I did. Um, that woodsmanship, like you said, is, is pretty underrated these days, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's underrated. I mean, you know, a lot of people, you know, they watch the TV and they see a guy and, uh, you know, it's hunting over a manicured food plot and in a shooting house, and and you know, he's ran his trail cameras, or he's had a guide say, you know, at eight thirty, there's going to be a you know, 140 class, 150 class buck come out, you know, from the east and the end of the field, and and uh, all that's great. I mean, I'm you know, definitely, I definitely like hunting over food plots and stuff like that too. But growing up here in the mountains, we didn't we didn't have a lot of food plots or fields, and you just had miles and miles and miles of woods. And that really made you, like I said, you had to have your woodsmanship skills on the on the next level, you know, to get to where you had the opportunity to even, you know, see it, you much less shoot one. So it's, you know, it's a lot, it's a it's a lot different, you know, hunting around here and stuff. Not and a squirrel hunting, you know, without a doubt, made me a better, you know, all around hunter, maybe a better deer hunter and a better turkey hunter. And um, you know, growing up, like I said, I hunted with my papa and my dad and my uncles and we used to go to to beat each other at squirrel hunting i mean it was a you know we loved the hunt part but we also like get back in the truck and swapping stories and see who killed the most and we usually used uh bolt action 22s with scopes and we try to head shoot them and we wouldn't even count the squirrel you know unless it was headshot (laughs) so if you brought back six squirrels and only four of them were headshot you know you only killed four and so forth but it and and that's another thing you had to really pick your shots you had to be able to sneak and and uh um, squirrel hunting. I mean, I, I think a lot of people that didn't grow up like I did doing it, they've got a, a wrong impression about what you know what it is. I mean, you know, you, when you're in a deer stand, it seems like the squirrels are everywhere. I mean, they're, they're running up the tree beside you. They're you know mm-hmm. they're, they're fooling you all the time. You sometimes you think they might be deer, and and that squirrels are running everywhere. You think, man, if I you know if I was squirrel hunting, you know, the squirrel hunting stuff's easy. But if you squirrel hunt, you know, pressured areas where the squirrels have been hunting and stuff, I mean, you've got to be able to sneak, you've got to be able to move through the woods. And and uh, the way we always did it, we didn't just go out and flop down under a hickory nut tree that had cuttings under it and, you know, wait for the squirrel to, you know, come to us. We would move through the woods, you know, where you had to be able to sneak and and um, and identify the different trees and know where to go and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, look up at the horizon, and you'll see a little branch go down and back up. You knew that was a squirrel. You could identify that even if it was windy and stuff. And um, as far as, like like I said, we'd hunt with rifles, and, and a lot of times you'd come up on, like, a, a beech nut tree or a hickory nut tree or, or a white oak tree, and it'd have multiple squirrels in it. And, you know, guys that aren't experienced squirrel hunters would just ease up there and shoot the first squirrel they got a good shot at. And you can kill them that way, but the way we would do it is uh, we would cherry-pick the tree. And what I mean by that is if the, if the tree had six squirrels in it and they were spread out in the tree cutting, uh, we would get in position to shoot where we could see most of the tree and we'd get a lean. And you would 
you would shoot the squirrels lower down and work your way up, and you put space in between your shots. And uh, if you would do that, you could end up killing five. If the squirrel had, I mean, if the tree had five or six squirrels, you could kill up to five and possibly even six squirrels if you did it right. Wow. And the reason why you'd start at the bottom, you know, if you shot one out to the top and it fell through the other ones that were in the tree, you know, eating, they would they would see that and they would get spooked. But if you'd shoot the lower ones out and and uh, you know put some time in between your shots and wait, a lot of times with the first shot, even with the rifle, you know, they stop cutting. Like what you know, what was that? If you don't, they're looking around, they're being wary, and and if you don't move and don't do anything, sooner or later one will get greedy and start, you know, cutting a hickory nut again, drop a little bit of the nut. They'll say, well, it must be fine. That one's eating, so I'm gonna start eating. They'd all start eating again, and you pick another one out. And you could, like I said, you could put some space in between your shots, and you could clean out an entire tree. And you know, that's that, that was the woodsmanship skill part of it. And um, today, a lot of it seems like a lot of hunters are getting away, from, you know, from the woodsmanship skills, which is which is kind of sad. Yeah, it's interesting that 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 idea of working the tree like that that's, sounds just like uh, you know I've been getting into fly fishing the last half decade or something. The same mm-hmm. thing, like working a pool, start at the back and work your way up because right. they're facing upstream. Um, right, that's pretty interesting. You talked about uh, how when you're deer hunting, it feels like squirrel hunting should be easy, you know, because you're seeing them yep. all over the place. I feel like we get the same thing as deer hunting when you talk to a friend or family member who doesn't deer hunt and they're like mm-hmm. why, why are you out there all the time it seems so easy i see him when i drive to work every day right i hate that <laughs> yeah i think the comedian ron white was talking about one of his brother-in-law or somebody was was a deer hunter and he was talking about how elusive they were and all that kind of stuff and and ron was kind of making fun of it because he didn't deer hunt saying yeah they're real elusive you know i've got headlights on and blowing a horn and i still end up hitting one <laughs> yeah. but it's it's a whole different ball game when you're you know in, the, in their environment and, you know, a lot of people go, like, these state parks and stuff, and they'll see the deer, and the deer let, let them walk right by them and whatnot, and, you know, and they'll feed right, you know, sometimes right up somebody's hand and stuff, and they think, man, this, this deer hunt, it's not hard at all. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'll tell you what, come down in the mountains with me uh, after about the first week of gun season and, and, and talk to me about how easy it is. It's a different different world when they're like you're in their environment and they've been hunted before. Yeah, whole different story. So speaking of that, then, when this episode is going to drop for the world to hear, it's going to be smack dab in the middle of what probably most people consider to be the best hunting of the entire year, right in the middle mm-hmm. of that first two weeks of November. Right. Um, that period is still ahead of you and me right now as we talk, though. So right. what are you going to be doing over the next couple of weeks? What's your What's your rut plan? Are you hunting at home? Are you traveling? What do you got in store? I'm... Um, I live in, uh, like I said, southeast Kentucky, right on the Tennessee-Kentucky line, and um, I hunt Kentucky and Tennessee, and I'm going to go up to Ohio this year. And I, I got a friend up there who's got some property I'm going to go hunt in southern Ohio, and I'm thinking about maybe possibly even going to uh, southern Indiana, depending on, you know, uh, how the other states and stuff go. But, you know, from now till January, I'm planning on being in the woods as much as as much as possible. And as, uh, as far as the rut and stuff goes, I think... Um, you know, there's a, you know, the myth of, you know, that big bucks just lose their minds and they're out just chasing and then, you know, they're they're running around everywhere. You know, there's a little bit of truth to that, but I think sometimes people get a, you know, uh, kind of a, a false idea about what, what that entails. You know, you're not just going to flop out in the woods and sit down and, you know, a monster buck run right over top of you. And sometimes that does happen. I mean, you always hear the story about the guy that hadn't scouted all year, didn't even want, you know, plan on hunting, and 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 called one of his buddies, decided he was going to go, goes out and borrows a gun or buys a gun at Walmart the night before, or, 
you know, and just and and sitting out there, and 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 they just drop him off anywhere, and he's sitting out there and gets bored, and walks around, or or decides he has to go back to the truck to you know the warm up or something, and ends up shooting a Boone and Crockett buck. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know that that can happen, you know, because there's a lot of factors. You know, the big bucks are definitely on the move. You're seeing more daytime activity, and then you've got the hunting pressure in the woods, which is you know bucks that are normally nocturnal can get bumped and jumped and ran right over top of somebody, you know, and and that does happen. But that, you know, is pretty much luck. And I'll take luck, don't get me wrong, but if you want to be consistent, you know, you've got to be able to you got to have some strategies and tactics, you know, for hunting a rut. You can't just go out there and hope for the best and you know, it's like buying a lottery ticket. You know, you can't you can't have that mentality. That'll get you a buck every now and then, where if you do it the right way, you know, you can you can get bucks season after season during the rut. Yeah. So with that being the case then when your rut hunts kick off here, maybe today or soon, the next few yep. days or whatever it is, um, what do you? What does that look like for you? Do you go in and you know? Are you thinking just basically? All right, I've got this property I'm hunting, and I have got this many spots set up for certain wind directions, and you're just going to check mm-hmm. the wind and do it, or or what's on your mind right now leading up to these next couple hunts? Well, I'm a firm believer in um, the you know there's there's transitional phases of the rut. And um, how you hunt the rut depends on what transit, you know, what current transition that you're in, and what the deer are doing. And um, you know, some guys go out there and they find some, you know, fresh scrapes and rubs and some hot sign, and they they throw a stand up or pop up a blind, and that's where they're going to hunt. And sometimes that works. Um, but I've learned, you know, over the years, I've kind of fine-tuned my tactics, you know, to meet each transitional phase, you know, what activity is going on. Uh, like right now, I ran cameras uh, this morning. Uh, before I before I was talking to you here, and and um, um, I've seen some, you know, going in, I've seen some scrapes that weren't there, you know, a week ago. You know, scrapes and rubs are starting to pop up and everything, and and it's like I said, it's a good time to be in the woods. But what's going on right now in this particular transition is what I call the um, it's the scouting and roaming stage. And um, what I mean by that is the mature bucks that are going to be doing a lot of the breeding. What they're doing right now, you know, they're obviously they're territorial, they're they're scraping, they're rubbing, they're doing all that. But what they're doing, and I've got like on one property, I've probably got um, one of the locations I'm hunting probably right now, I've got 10 cameras out. And what I'm starting to see, and I see this every year, is about this time of year here in southeast Kentucky, what the bucks are doing, they're out scouting for does. And what I'm, they're going to the you know, doe hot spots. They're going to you know doe bedding areas, doe feeding areas, uh, the doe travel routes, and that kind of stuff. And they're scouting where those those are at. And when they find a hot spot place like that, then they're usually they're going to leave a big scrape. You know, they're going to make some rubs. They're going to leave a scrape. And they're letting those does know that hey, you know, I'm here. And they'll also go, you know, routinely go through and check those. And the does will go in and urinate in them, let them know that they're there, even when they're not in heat. I mean, I've got I've got video and pictures right now of does urinating, you know, in the, in the scrape and, and some of the mock scrapes that I've made that. You know they're not in heat. You know by no means, but they're just letting them know they're you know that they're there. And there's I've got young bucks you know coming up and and working you know established scrapes and mock scrapes that I've made. But uh, while well, talking about the the scouting and roaming, mm-hmm. uh, we had one buck that um, about two weeks ago he was in a you know a textbook feeding the bedding pattern. And um, in Kentucky you can put out corn and you know apples and stuff like that. It's legal to put that out here during deer season. And uh, there's a ton of acorns this year, and uh, I had a spot that's down in the hollers, you know, out of the wind, and there's a lot of white oak and red oak and pin oak trees, and 
And also, you know, I had some corn and stuff like that and had a camera over the feeder and we had this deer coming in, you know, sometimes, you know, right after dark, sometimes in the middle of the night, you know, or sometimes before he went back to bed and, and every now and then you had a little bit of daytime activity from it, but he was mainly feeding and bedding is what he was doing. And uh, about a week ago, I started getting, we started putting out some mock scrapes and stuff on other cameras on this same property, and he was a good mile, a half, two miles from where we'd been getting him. And uh, he was working a mock scrape, and we had another mock scrape probably about a mile and a half from there, and he was on it the same day. Like two hours later, he was on it. And what he's doing is he's going around to those areas, he's working scrapes, he's letting the does know he's there, and he's getting an idea of where the does are going to be at. Because he knows this this isn't his first rodeo. You know, he's a veteran. He's probably a five or six year old buck, and uh, he knows that when the does start coming into estrus, he he's gonna know where they're gonna be at, and he'll make a milk run. And what I mean by that, he'll go to each spot, scent checking, looking for does. You know, in those areas, and he'll go to the next spot. He'll go to the next spot till he finds one, and when he finds one, he'll try to lock her down and breed. And then he'll go right back again. He'll go in that, that same, you know, those same areas. He just go to each area. It's kind of like a gobbler on a strut zone. Yeah. You know, they got they got strut zone. They'll hit one strut zone and they'll spit and drum and gobble. And if they if the hens come to them, you know, they hook up. If not, they'll go to the next strut zone and do the same thing. The bucks are kind of doing. They're in that mode right now. Like they're they're scouting and roaming and and looking for the areas that. You know, when, when the big show starts, they're going to know where to go. Yeah. What time period do you think that that scouting roaming period uh, consists of? Because right now we're talking on October 30th, but yeah. when do you think that usually starts and stops, give or take? That's usually uh, around here. And, I mean, you know, and I've seen it, you know, in other states. I've hunted Illinois, I've hunted Kansas, I've been all over the place. And, and usually, you know, in the Midwest, and it's usually um, – Towards the end of October, and it'll go all the way up to about the about the uh, first week of November, and then the second week of November is when you start seeing the second phase around here, which is the you know they're they're, they're cruising and 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 they're actually scent checking and looking for those to breed. You know that that stuff's going on, and then you know going into the chasing and breeding stage. But, yes. Sorry, go ahead. Go, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, can you elaborate then on that second and third stage just a little bit more? Yeah. The, uh, the the stages what well, I usually break down. I've written all the stuff about it. You know, you've got the pre rut, which is the you know the beginning there, and um, um, that's usually when season comes in, and they're, they're usually locked to a textbook feeding bedding pattern, that kind of stuff, going to watering holes. You know, it's a little bit warmer during that time, and then it'll transition into you know get you up into October, and a lot of biologists and stuff refer to that as uh, that period of it's a it's a late pre rut, but you also start seeing. Um, some activity that makes people think, oh my gosh, you know, the rut's early this year. It's way early. You know, I hear that every year. I get, I can't tell you, like on Facebook, <laughs> I get messages from people I don't even know. Man, the rut's early this year. Uh-huh. I've seen a buck chasing a doe. And, and they're not like, you know, I, I mean, as a hunter, hunter, you know, since I've been able to walk, you know, you, <laughs> people I say, well, you know, those guys are lying. They're not, but they're actually seeing some activity. And what a lot of times what they're seeing, they're seeing the younger bucks, you know, that, that are they're wanting to breed. They're fired up. They're anxious. They don't. They just don't know what they're doing. They don't have a clue. The does yeah. aren't in estrus yet, and 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 you've seen it. You know yourself. You know hunting. You have three or four does out feeding, minding their own business, and all of a sudden, you know, a spike or a little basket rack will come in, and you see the does start getting nervous. You know, yeah. right off the bat, and he comes in. You see him. He'll like bristle up and make a showing that he'll try to come 
up on one and, and try to climb up on her and she'll run off and then he, and he'll stop and then and then they'll start feeding again. He'll feed a little bit and he'll go to another one and try to do it. And then sometimes he'll get on one and they'll chase them plumb out of the out of sight. You know, that happens, but you know, those does aren't ready to breed. That's not a rut. He's not he's not breeding those does. But what does happen sometimes is biologists will tell you that the oldest does in the herd will come in, you know, come in estrus first. And a lot of times that is mid October. And you actually see a mature buck on a, you know, on, on a doe like that, you know, pushing her or even breeding her or, or whatever. And then people think, oh, my gosh, you know, the rut's early. But the, the rest, the, the majority of the herd is not going to come in, you know, the asterisk until about the second week of November around here. Now, that, I mean, it, and that's going to vary from state to state. You know, when you go south, you got, you know, it's way later than that. But, you know, but around here, about the second week of November, all the way up to like November 25th is when, you know, a lot of the breeding and stuff's going on. So, so, the, so those bucks are once they're moving into that cruising phase, then they're starting to really hit those key doe areas mm-hmm. just more often and more in daylight. Would you say? Yep, yep, yep. We got some of our. I got a, a video, not one video. I got several videos of the buck I was telling you about a few days ago on uh, two of our mock scrapes, and we, we usually put those cameras on video mode just because I like the, the, te- the video mode will wear your batteries down a lot quicker, you know, and it, it takes a lot longer to go through the videos. But when you put them on a mock scrape like that, I, I mean, I love seeing I love I love watching that. I love watching them, you know, walk up to it and urinate the scrape, put the rack up in the overhanging branch and, you know, lick on the branch, do the, you know, bite off branches, do the, you know, work the thing. And plus what that does, that, you know, pictures can be deceiving, you know, depending on how close the deer is to the camera, the lighting, the angle, and all that kind of stuff, because, you know, you know, as well as I do, you know, in the past, you know, I'm sure you've got pictures before and you think, man, I'm on a shooter. You know, that that's a shooter. Mm-hmm. And then you get a couple pictures a couple of days later and you know, it's the same deer. Like it'll have a unique rack, like maybe a kicker on its G2 and stuff. So, you know, it's the same deer. And you're thinking that deer might need another year. That, yeah. you know, that deer might be a three or four year old. When I was thinking it was a five year old, and then you know, then you see it in person, and you, and then you'll know. But with the video, they come up. You get all angles of the rack. You know, you're getting them. You know, with their head down, their head up, sideways, and that you can you can judge them a little better. And plus, like I said, it's just cool watching them watching them work those scrapes. Yeah. My son last year, I think uh, yeah, I was last. I was filming him, and he killed he killed one over the mock scrape that uh, that we made, and um, it was awesome. to come in and and um, he was wanting to shoot it right off the bat. I made him I made him wait just a little bit because I wanted to get that footage, you know, of it, <laughs> of it working the scrape. And and that's that's easy to say when you're running the camera. When you're behind yeah. the camera, you can say stuff like that. But when you're you know you're behind the gun or behind the bow, it's a different different story. But he was patient, and he got, let me get some good footage of it, and then he, he knocked it in the dirt. So, That's um, pretty cool. Like, right now, you know, I, I'm I'm fired up. You know, I, I wish I was in the woods. I'm having to work today, and um, I wanted to take some time to talk to you, and I've got to go right back to work and get everything done. I'm going to try to I'm gonna try to take some time off. You know, our gun season comes in here the second uh, Saturday in November. I try to take some time off, you know, during that time hunting with my son and my dad and, and whatnot. So I'm, I'm excited about it, but I'd love to be in the woods right now. Right now is one of my favorite times to be in the woods. Um over the next few weeks, uh, this scouting Roman stage I was telling you about, you can, they're really territorial during that, that period. And you're starting to see more daytime activity. And, and going back to these transitional phases, I try to adjust my tactics and my setups, and my strategies to that, you know, the current phases that, that we're in. And uh, like right now, you know, I'll use mock scrapes. I'll hunt over existing scrapes. Um, you can, you can, you know, you can be versatile depending on what kind of situation stuff you're in. And you can, 
you can go all out and, 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 you know, hit them with tactics that attack all three senses, which I like doing, you know, attacking their eyes or nose and their ears. And, and one way of doing that is you can attack their nose, you know, with scents and stuff and attack their ears with calling and attack their eyes with a decoy. Um, I've used, um, like up in Illinois and especially Illinois, it's a good state to decoy, but I've used decoys around here too, you know, during the bow season. I, I don't do that much during the gun season because I will get shot you know, during the rifle season. <laughs> yeah. Somebody come in and it look like Swiss cheese or decoys when they, when they get done with it. But but I, I kind of like, you know, bow hunting, you know, you can get away with that. I'll put a, I'll put a, a buck decoy out and, and, uh, 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 you know, and work a mock scrape and, and put some uh, to, some tarsal glands in and dominant buck urine and and um, if I'm not seeing anything, I may I may even blind call a little bit, do a, you know a couple of agitated you know grunts or a snort weeds or something like that, and get one to you know to, to come in. So, so that that so. decoy idea, what, what time or which phases of the rut are you trying that? Is that just a uh, you know, roaming and scouting time period is that like no? Well, you November? can you, you gotta you need to match your. Uh, that's a good question. You you need to. I, I try to match my decoy setups, my calling tactics, my everything too. Like like I said, like the current transition. Like right now, you know, a, a single buck decoy, like an intruder buck uh, decoy, is a good tactic to use, and I'll use it over the next you know over the next couple of weeks. And um, uh, you can put them out and 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 you know, and just kind of get a feel for what the deer are doing. I mean, if if you see them. If you're starting to get some daytime activity of bucks working a, uh, an existing scrape or a mock scrape during the day and that kind of stuff, and they're, you can see their necks are swelled up. I mean, you can see a big difference. I mean, like a couple of weeks ago, you know, they look normal. Now they look like monsters. I mean, they're mm-hmm. <laughs> two- and three-year-old bucks are looking like they're, you know, their necks and stuff look like NFL linemen. They're huge, and they're swelled up, and they just look, you know, look like different animals now. And, you know, they're territorial. It's what they're – and you can key in on that and exploit it if you, if you do it right. But I'll use a – I'll use a button, and not all the time. I mean, I'm not saying every time I go out and set up, I'm, I'm attacking all three, but, you know, in the right situations, I'll take a buck decoy, and, and like I said, I'll use some uh, dominant buck urine and, and um, um, some uh, tarsal gland and stuff like that and and uh, uh, and just see what happens, and occasionally I'll hit them with some, some column sequences, you know, just do some, like, agitated grunts. And another good tactic is one you can do uh, with that, that that same scenario you can do a, a grunt and rub and what I mean by that you can take an antler um, you know if everybody's got most people got sheds and stuff take a shed antler and and when you get everything set up especially during these low periods where you're not seeing a whole a lot of action and stuff sometimes if the if the deer's within earshot you can you can take that uh, antler and you can rub it on a sapling tree rub it and do a couple agitated grunts rub it again you know and 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 it's all about realism. I mean, you know, deer's hearing that a lot of a lot of people go out and and they they've watched the Outdoor Channel and they've seen a guy rattling them in in Texas and they'll go out and they they rattle like crazy and they do this and do that and they're they're, they're you know they're doing it way too much and way too loud and and uh, they're not seeing a whole lot. They're wondering, well, heck, that worked on TV, but it didn't work here. Well, you got to match your calling tactics to the current transition. So what I'm saying, like this this rub and uh, this grunt and rub tactic, I mean, it, it'll work because that's what they're doing right now. They're territory. They're making rubs, and they've they've got their core areas established. Like you know, this is my domain. This is where I'm going to be breeding at. These are my does. You know, that's how the dominant bucks look at it. And if you went in there and worked his scrape or made a mock scrape in his area. And then he's within the earshot. He may be, you know, bedded down, and he hear you in there grunting going on and, and making a rub and stuff. That that ticks him off. He doesn't like that, you know. And they'll, and they'll come in. I I killed one um, 
it's probably been three or four years ago, it ran on the Night and Hell Show on the Outdoor Channel, and it was here in the mountains. And um, we got in there, it was the evening hunt, it was about this time of year right here, and um, the buck we had on camera was completely nocturnal. I mean, it was just, it was a ghost. I mean, I had, like I said, I had 10 or 11 cameras out, and, you know, had him pretty much pegged where he was bedding, had his staging area, where he was feeding, had his travel routes, I, I knew all that stuff, but we, we just weren't getting a whole lot of daytime activity. And then he started showing up some during the day and working a mock scrape when he was out, you know, like I said, he was out roaming and scouting looking for does. And I knew that was a time I could capitalize on, you know, take advantage of it. So we got in the tree. And the funny thing is we got in there, the cameraman and I, and, and um, there was a, there was a, already a couple of does. It was one of these cloudy, overcast days, and I'd had to work. But I got in there early. I mean, I left work a little early and got in there at 3.30, you know. And uh, they were already in there. And... um uh, so we had to sit there and wait, you know, for them to kind of kind of feed out. And I had, luckily, I had a, had the camera, the, the wireless camera sends the pictures to your phone, which was cool because I, I knew before going down in there if there was any deer in there, I had the camera facing towards the, the double-set stands. And, uh, you know, I had a pretty good idea if there was any deer, you know, in that area, and, and, and we could see those does. So we basically just let them feed on out and left. And uh, so we snuck on down in there, didn't bump any deer, got in the stand, and got everything got set up, and just perfect evening. Cold front coming in, overcast, cloudy, I mean, just, you know, deer hunter's dream. Got in there, and we had a couple, um, we had a couple basket racks come in. And, you know, they were coming in, and they were feeding a little bit, and they were down there, but they got too close, so you could see their, their necks bristle up, and they'd, they'd lock up and push each other. They weren't, like, fighting violently or anything like that. They'd just push each other back and forth, and that, all that stuff was going on. And uh, we was filming that and enjoying everything. And uh, about that time, uh, out of the holler below us, a coyote comes up, and those deer lost their minds. I mean, they blew. They ran right down into the area where the buck that we were hunting, where he was, he'd generally been bedding at. So, you know, that, that could have messed up the entire hunt. Because I know they ran right over top of him. They were blowing every few minutes. <laughs> I was like, my gosh, you know, yeah, <laughs> I was like, man, this is a perfect evening. This is an evening right before a cold front. I, I know, I mean, just had it, my God, I knew he was going to probably come out and, and give us a shot. And now here these jokers are down there, you know, just going crazy. And um, what I'd learned, though, a long a long time ago hunting, as I'd seen, like we stopped talking about earlier, a lot, these, a lot of these young bucks uh, chase those and they're not ready to breed, those does will will blow like that, you know, when they're being harassed and aggravated. I've seen them blow like, whew, you know, just like yeah. they would if they've, if they've, you know, seen something they didn't like or they, you know, they picked up human sin or a cow, they do that. But occasionally they'll do it because of that. So I did that. I, I blew like a duck with my mouth up here, you know, back where he's at. And then I did a, like a little a young buck tenon grunt. You know, I've got a grunt call that I can adjust the, you know, sound like a young buck, sound like a doe, sound like a, you know, mature buck or whatever. And I did like a little young buck tenon grunt, you know, and like he was harassing her. And by that, you're just saying like a burp, burp, yep, just a burp, yep. that kind yep. of thing. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's more of a nasally type grunt, you know. It's a, it doesn't have that D, doesn't have that bass to it, you know. Mm-hmm. But you can tell it's a buck, and and uh, I, I did that, and it wasn't. Now I've got all this off film. This is not just some, you know, just some some hunting story. I mean, this all happened, <laughs> and it ran on that door channel. We were sitting there, and uh, I had a young cameraman at the time, and. And uh, he was crazy about deer hunting, and he'd killed some deer, but he had never, he, you know, he was always under depression. His dad and granddad hunted around here, and, and, you know, people just didn't call a whole lot, you know, because 
you just call them what they didn't think calling was very effective and all that kind of stuff. And, and a lot of them had seen the, you know, the shows on TV where they're hunting Texas and they're rattling and they were just running from every direction. And they tried that here and it didn't work. So they just said, now oh, calling doesn't work here. And Colin does work. Colin works everywhere. You know, deer are vocal everywhere. It just you just got to match what you know what, what they're doing at the time with your Colin. And um, so what happened was we're sitting up there, and he said, "Why, why did you do that?" You know, he's whispering. He's in the stand above me. And I told him, "I thought I'll, I'll take right here. after the high, I'll take what I was doing." And uh, so he was there thinking, "You know, why, why was he doing that?" And uh, all of a sudden, down in the holler, we heard. You know, deep, a deep mm-hmm. pitch. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, he, his eyes got, I mean, big round saucers. He said, Did you hear that, Drake? You think that was somebody? <laughs> he thought it was somebody on a grunt call. I said, No. I said, That's not, that's not somebody. I said, that, 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 that's, a, that's the buck. And that's right where he bed at. Those ducks that just had ran down there on him. And um, he could hear, we started hearing stick. It, it was dry. I started hearing stick break and hearing that steady, you know, walk. I mean, he was just, he came in all stiff legged like Frankenstein, you know, all stiff legged, bristled up, mad. I mean, he was, he was mad. And I could literally hear my cameraman breathing. I mean, he was, I mean, he was in the stand above me, but he was just so fired up because he never heard a buck be vocal. And it, and it snort wheezed right before he got up there. He'd never heard a, a buck snort wheeze before. Cool. So he'd seen it on TV and that kind of stuff. But when he heard that, I mean, he was just, he was just about to lose his mind. And uh, so he comes up there after it snort wheezed, steady walked up there, hit my mock scrape, wore it out. We got footage of it just wearing the mock scrape out, you know. It's pawing the dirt. It's got its rack up in the Reagan branch, biting stuff. It's your, I mean, it's awesome. Just, just, I mean, just beautiful footage. And it comes on out from Mark Scrape and comes over where it heard most of the calling. And it went right in one of my shoot lanes, and I was already at full draw, and I smacked it. I mean, it watched it fall off inside the stand. It ran about 40 yards and, you know, piled up. But, um, that hunt would, in my opinion, you know, it's, sometimes it's hard to say what would happen, what wouldn't have happened, but, in my opinion, if I hadn't have done the calling there, I don't think that buck would have come out till after dark. I think it would have been thinking, you know, a predator jumped those those young bucks, ran them down there on him. There was some, there was possibly some danger up there. If he was going to go through, it'd probably been after dark. Mm-hmm. But I think when he heard he heard them doing that, and he heard the uh, that probably got him alarmed. And then when he heard me do the you know that tendon grunt, and then me do a you know a, a blow with my mouth. You know, after when he was doing that, tent, when I was doing the tendon grunt, I think he was convinced that a buck that might have been a little bit bigger than the two that ran in on top of him was up there, had ran them off, and then was up there harassing that doe. And that's what I, I, I think he thought. And he was going to go up there and let him know who, was the, who the boss was. Yeah. So what about, I mean, you mentioned the fact that calling can be effective if it's done, you know, at the right times to match the, yep. the right time of year or situation. Yep. So what about some of the other typical calls we're thinking of, like a snort wheeze or a doe nest yep. bleat, something like that? When's the right time well, for I'll something like right, that? I'm sorry to interrupt you. What, what I'll do right now is when I'm in this territorial scout and roaming stage, I'll do some of the agitated grunts, those deep grunts. I'll do that grunt and rub technique I was telling you about and um, and stuff like that. And uh, the snort wheeze, um, I usually don't do um, until I see a buck. And if I see a buck and it's out of bow range and it's going the opposite direction or, you know, it's going away from me, and I'm not already see I'm not going to get a shot, I'll hit them with a snort wheeze. The snort wheeze is a tricky vocalization. You can do it sometimes, and a buck will come in there wanting to, I mean, just bristled up, wanting to, wanting to fight the world. 
and you can do it other times and a, a buck that's been whipped and stuff. It may be a mature buck. It may even be a shooter buck, but if it's been whipped before or, or you know, b- bucks are just like people. You know, you've got some people that, you know, you look at them the wrong way, they're ready to fight. Mm-hmm. You know, and you've got other people that will go 10 miles out of their way to avoid any kind of confrontation, you know, and, and deer and stuff are the, are, are the same way, especially ones that have been whipped. So I've seen deer, you know, respond to snort weeds where they come in fired up wanting to wanting to rock, and I've seen them where they, you know, were made them weary, and they still may have come in, but they were kind of weary about, you know, where's this buck at? Is it the buck that's already whipped me? You know, that kind of deal. And I've seen them go the other way, you know, you know, with it. So I use a snort weeds, you know, if I'm in a situation where the buck's going away and, and I'm not going to get a shot, you know, and, and, and I'll hit them with that, and, you know, sometimes it'll turn them around, and, you know, sometimes it won't. But um, the but this time of year with my calling sequences, I'll do that that uh, that uh, grunt and rub technique that I told you about earlier. I'll do the some agitated grunts, and I will do a snort wheeze, you know, depending on you know the situation. And if it's in a situation like I was talking about earlier, you know, where a young buck's harassed, I'll do a young buck tendon grunt and then do a doe blow, you know, like she's being harassed by them. You know, I'll do that sometimes. Just depends on what you know what the situation is. But those are the kind of calls I'll, I'll use on that. Now, later on, when I'm starting to see, the, you know, going to the actual breeding transition of the rut, and I'm starting to see bucks chasing, you know, mature bucks, not the basket racks and stuff, but mature bucks actually, you know, you know, on those. Then, you know, they're, 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 if you see breeding activity or them, you know, walking behind them, pushing a doe or you know, actually breeding a doe, then I'll switch it up. And, and that time I'll, I'll do more of the uh, uh, estrostole bleeds and, and, and stuff like that. And, um, uh, Depending on the situation, depending on the buck to doe ratio in that area, I, I may even, um, you know, during a low period, I may do a, a, a dominant buck tending grunt, you know, louder grunt, you know, than, than tending the doe, pushing the doe, and, and, and do the extra stove bleeds, and maybe mix up uh, a, a little uh, rattling and, and fighting with that because, you know, bucks are still territorial and whatnot. And if they, and I, I mean, how many times I've, I've watched it on that door channel, and I've seen it in person, I know you have too, where you've got a buck chasing the doe. And he's grunting, and he's chasing her and whatnot, and he's a pretty good-looking buck. And another buck that was a near shot heard that, and here he comes in. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes he'll join up with that buck and chase her, and sometimes those two bucks will fight each other. And that's a common scenario that happens. So you might do a, a tendon grunt and you know into a estrostole bleed into a, a agitated grunt into some fighting, you know, because that that's a scenario that could happen. You know, bucks come in there. There was a buck chasing the doe. He was on her, and a more dominant buck come in and you know confronted them, and they, it broke out into a fight. So you can you know you can mix it up. Now, what about rattling? Because that's another one of those calling tactics, and I, I like the fact mm-hmm. that a lot of your calling ideas revolve around trying to make a a realistic scenario, you know, with the rubbing mm-hmm. on the tree and everything. When yep. you're rattling, do you do the same kind of thing? I know some guys yep. will put rattling antlers on a rope and bang it around down on the ground so it rustles in the leaves or yep. shake a tree. Or Do you do anything like that? Yeah, I'll tell you one thing I do do, and I'll probably, some people listening just probably laugh at me for doing it, and I'm sure some uh, cameraman folks humor when I've done it until actually a buck comes in after I do it. And uh, it's all about realism. I mean, it's the same thing with turkey calling and everything else. I mean, you've got to sound real. I mean, it's got to sound like a real scenario. And sometimes, like when I'm doing that, you know, going back to the tendon grunt and, and you know, an extra snow bleat, if I'm sitting there, you know, uh, and I'm not seeing a whole lot, there's a little period, not a lot going on, and sometimes, especially if I'm hunting off the ground, and you can do it off the tree stand too, but just it's a little bit more risky trying to get back up in the tree. 
But if I'm in a blind in in a, an area where I think that they're that they're a pretty good distance from me, where I've got time to get back in the tree, I'll do it. Is uh, is I've got like one one of the grunt calls I use has got the it's got an adapter on it where you can you can adjust the, the vocalizations. You can go from like I said a young buck to a doe bleat to an estrus doe bleat to a dominant buck grunt, and it's got a tube you can do a snort wheeze on it. You can do all that. So one of the scenarios I'll do is I'll uh. I'll actually, especially when it's dry, I'll get out and I'll just do a tendon grunt, just light tendon grunt, nasally grunt, and I'm moving with it, and I'll move, and I'll be breaking sticks. I'm trying to make some noise. I'm, I'm going through the waves just like you would, you would, you know, you would hear if it was actually going on. They do an extra stove bleat, and they do it, and, I, and, the, and if they're sitting there, if they're in the earshot, they can hear that that call's moving. Uh, bucks can get call shy just like turkeys or anything else can, but when they're hearing, a lot of times when they've been called to, the calling's coming from the same exact spot. And just like a turkey, uh, if you make a call, they've pinpointed almost, ex- it's eerie how, how they can pinpoint exactly where, you, where you've called from. The bucks are the same way. I mean, they can pinpoint exactly where that call's coming from. And if it's moving and stuff, and they're hearing, you know, leaves ruffle and sticks break, and you're trotting, you know, like a deer, that, that, sounds, that sounds realistic. And a lot of times I've done that, and then get back in, you know, get back in my blind, or, or you know, sometimes I'm not in the blind, I'm just sitting on the ground. I've got a makeshift blind, you know, made up around me, or climb out in a tree, and you do that, and it's crazy how, how effective that can be. I mean, it really can work. And I remember the first time I did it with my, my son, he was filming me, and he said, Dad, he said, you know what, he said, it's crazy, he said. But if, if you know, if I closed my eyes when that stuff was going on, he said I would have been a hundred percent sure that that was actually a buck chasing a doe. He said because it sounded, you know, so real, you know, with the leaves and all that stuff moving. And the same thing with that that grunt and rub tactic I'm telling you about. I mean, you get real antler going up against a sapling tree and you're scraping it, and the and the, and the, if it's got leaves on it and it's shaking and going on, and you stop a little bit and grunt a little bit and put some time in between to do it again, that sounds realistic. I mean, that's something that they don't hear every day unless it's the real thing. So I think that, you know, the, the, the more you can add realism to your, you know, to your setup, the better, the better off the odds are be that you'll, you know, get a shot. Yeah, I really, I really like that. That's, that's something that not a lot of people take to that level, but it sure makes yep. a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to admit you feel kind of goofy. You feel kind of goofy <laughs> out there, you go know, trotting around and I, you're trying to sound like a deer, you know, you're trotting around and. And, and and stuff and you and, and you're thinking man, I, I must look pretty you know pretty silly right now but it I mean it sounds real I mean you can you know I've got it on video of us doing it and and if you if you not looking at me and you know turn your head and you could you know hear you would think that that's actually what's going on I mean that, that there's a buck chasing chasing a dollar same thing with the rattling I mean uh, a lot of people just break out the antlers or break out uh, the, the rattling bag, whatever they got, and just start, you know, going crazy. And sometimes that works. But what I do with, with when I rattle, you know, he's asking about the rattling, and I got off on the other. But what do you do on the when I when I rattle? Well, I'll I'll start it out, you know, like a real scenario. I'll do an agitated, just a deep buck grunt, real, real, you know, real, real deep with some bass to it. And then I may and I'll turn my head or it could sound like it's coming from another direction adjust the vocalization on the grunt tube and do a, you know, another buck grunt. And it sounds a little bit different. Like there's two bucks coming there and they've seen each other and they've they grunted each other like, hey, you better, I'm here, you better get out of here. And the other one's doing the same thing. And then I'll hit a snort wheeze. <laughs> you know, do that with them and they're thinking, well, that, that buck's responding to the other buck coming up. And then, you know, I might do that as they grow, like it's coming towards them, and then start with the, you know, with the, with the rattling. You know, make, make some noise and stuff, then, but lead it up to that, not just start out, you know, rattling. 
And I'm not saying just start a random doesn't work because it, you know, it, it will depending on the scenario. But I always try to, to create as realistic calling scenarios I can that you know it sounds like the sounds like the real thing. That seems like you know I have better results when I, when, I, when I do that. And it's not a, I mean, it's not like on TV, you know, people see it on TV, especially on Texas, you know, because the deer, you know, I've seen people just, it just blows my mind. I remember as a kid when the Outdoor Channel first came out watching some of these shows in Texas, you know, being from Kentucky, I never had been to Texas or anything like that. And they, those guys would walk out there in them scenarios and they'd clash these big antlers together and just bucks would just come and run in from every direction <laughs> like he's ringing a dinner bell uh-huh. or something. I was thinking, my gosh, I got to get a set of you know, a, a rattling, well, I got to get out there and do that. And then you go out there and do it and you do it the wrong time of year and you don't do it right. Or you do it too much and, and you don't have the wind right. And you don't, you know, you, you know, your setup's not right and stuff and it doesn't work. Then you get, you start losing confidence that, well, maybe the deer in my area just aren't, you know, they just don't respond to the Because I hear that a lot around here in these mountains. The guys say, you know, this ain't, this ain't Kansas. This ain't Illinois. You, these deer don't, these deer don't respond. And, you know, and I was sort of thinking, well, you you just not done it right. I mean, and it's not going to work every time. I mean, it's like anything else. I mean, <laughs> every time you hit a deer call, uh, you know, a, a Boone and Crockett's not going to run up there and jump in your lap. It just, you know, it just doesn't work that way. I don't care if you're hunting Illinois or Texas or wherever. It just yeah. doesn't work that way. But if you if you can match the vocalizations with the current transition and add realism to your call, and the call can work, I don't care what state you're in. I don't care where you're hunting. I don't care how much hunting pressure there is. You know it'll it'll work, and I, I know that from fact, and and uh, I've got the video to prove it. <laughs> you know I've got hunt after hunt after hunt. You know on, on public land areas and and private only. It doesn't know that matters. I mean if you if you're doing it right, and the situation's right, you know they definitely respond because deer are vocal no matter what state they're living in, no matter how much hunt pressure it is. Deer are vocal. I mean that's just how it is. Yeah, it's interesting. It's one of those things that, like you said, a lot of people probably give up after trying it a handful of times and not getting the response. But yeah. I feel like a good response rate to calls. I mean, one out of every, every ten times maybe is what's honestly going to yep. happen. But usually that yep. one, you get that one positive response. It's it's mm-hmm. so worth the ten other times trying or the nine other times exactly trying, right. right? So it's it's worth That's the trying. That's the thing you know, the young man, you know, when you're you're single and you're out, out chasing girls, <laughs> if you if you just you know went up with the first pretty girl and hit on her a little bit and she blew you off and and rejected you. You know what do you do? You just go home and quit forever and never hit on another girl. I mean, that's, that's not how it works. I mean, you know, you know everybody's ratio, the grip <laughs> ratio is different on that. But I mean, you know, you you just got to keep doing it till till it works. That's what yeah. you got to do sometimes. And I'm not set saying you know climb up in your stand or climb up to your blind and just sit there and call the entire time you're out there because no, I, I'm just, you're probably not going to have great results. But I mean, calling can be a super effective way to, to you know generate a shot. And like you said, the you know one out of ten times. Well, if it worked the one out of ten times, it was well worth the other yeah, nine times that it didn't. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so. So let's let's rewind the tape a little bit. Um, so we've talked about how to call to deer, you know, when mm-hmm. you're at the right time of year in the right places. But let's rewind back to getting in the right places again. We 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 talked a little bit about you know, especially in this kind of seeking or scouting and roaming phase, mm-hmm. I mean, first part of November, first couple of weeks maybe. These deer are going from doe hotspot to doe hotspot, checking to see if they're ready to breed. Yep. Um, you hear about this a lot. I mean, if anyone's read or listened to any talk about the rut, you hear about doe bedding areas, you hear about funnels, um, and then you hear about one other thing, which is deer are crazy during the rut. You can't pattern them. 
But mm-hmm. when I hear you say, well, they're going back to hot spot, to hot spot, to hot spot, yep. that makes me think maybe you can pattern them you a little bit. Them, yep. So, so yeah, mm-hmm. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Cause I've, I definitely have some thoughts. We've chatted with a few folks that have pointed to some recent studies that show there's a little bit of, of, uh, patternable behavior, but what have you seen? What do you think about patterning deer during the rut? Yeah, you, you definitely can pattern deer during the rut. I mean, it, and there is truth to that. There, it is chaotic. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, is I've, I've used this example before, is that if a doe in heat and she's got a mature buck on her and she decides to walk across a crowded Walmart parking lot on Saturday morning, if she goes across that parking lot, he's going to go with her. Mm-hmm. That's what gets them killed this time of year, not only by hunters, but what gets them killed on the road and everything else. Wherever that doe goes, he's going to go. That's, that's you know, that's how it works. And you say, well, how do you, you know, how, how can you pattern that? Well, you pattern what we just talked about. You need to go to those spots. You need to run trail cameras. And one of the, it's, I guess it's kind of, it's great, but it's kind of a curse too. Because like right now when I'm talking to you, my phone's vibrated. My cell phone has about, I'm on the landline and my cell phone's vibrated about six times letting me know that I've got pictures. So right now there's some deer <laughs> in front of one of my, my trail cameras, and, and that's keeping me up late at night because I hear my phone vibrate at 3 in the morning. I'll jump up. I, it's like a kid at Christmas. Uh-huh. I'll run up there and see what's you know, in front of the camera. Sometimes it's coons. Sometimes it's you know deer, you know, and sometimes something else. But but, it, but yeah, going back to what I was saying, you use those wireless cameras and stuff, and in real time you can know what's going on. You know, in real time, like if you get – uh, you know, bucks going to a certain area, uh, one of those no hot spots at a, you know mid morning or whatnot, then you need to you need to try to hunt mid morning at that place. That's when he when he's going through there. Now, what won't be pattern is if he go, when he goes to those spots, it, like he like David Hill used to say, you know, like gobblers making a milk run and and bucks making a milk run. And what we mean by that, they're they're going to those spots, this spot, and if they don't do any good there, they're going to the next spot. If they don't do any good there, they're going to the next spot. And the part that's, that you can't pattern is if they go to one of those spots and they get on a doe, you know, that's actually ready to breed and eat, you know, he's going to go with her. And and a lot of times he'll try to get her. He'll try to, you know, corral and push her away from high traffic areas so he won't be interrupted by another buck. We don't have any competition. He'll try to get. He'll try to push her a little bit, but, I mean, you know, a doe's got a mind of her own, and so if she decides to go left and he's wanting her to go right, he can't persuade her and kind of push her to go right. And she ends up going left, he's going to go with her. And, you know, and, and some does, they'll, they'll make the buck work for it. They'll make them, you know, follow them a, a piece and, 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 you know, get them revved up and then, you know, then they'll breed with them. So, you, you know, the mind of a doe, you don't know which way she's going to go, you know what's going to happen. But what you, the part that you can pattern is the areas that he's going to be looking for those. And after he, after he gets with a doe and he's pushed her off and he's, he's bred her, you know, several times, when he gets done, he's going to go and look for another doe. So he's going to go to those same spots again. And it's all about timing. So if you can be in those areas, and trail cams can help you on that, especially the wireless ones. You know, if, you, if you've got the opportunity to get some wireless cameras and, and you've got them in those spots and you're, you're seeing a lot of mid-morning activity or midday activity or, you know, it could be right at daylight or whatnot, that's the times you need to hunt. Because even if he's uh, already got a doe out of there, I mean, how many, I mean, name me a place where, you, you know, there's only one doe. I mean, most of the time those does are real family-oriented. It'll be, you know, groups of does. And when he's, he's already got one out of there, and when he gets done with her, he'll be back through, you know, to try to get another one. And, and you just got to be there. And, and so there is some patterns to it. I mean, you can't just go out and, and flop down and just hope, you know, hope for the best. Where's the rut? You know, where's the boon and crocket at? It, it, it should be here any time. It doesn't work that uh-huh. way. I mean, you, you, I you can pattern it, but there, at the same time, there's a lot of truth. There is, there is some chaos in it. And the chaos is, or the factors you can't control. You and I can't control 
uh, where an Esther Stowe is going to go after a boat gets on her. We, we don't know what she's going to do. And a lot of times I don't think she knows what she's going to do. You know, she's being pushed by him, you know, and she's, you know, it's a breeding thing. She, she may go left, she may go right, she may go back the way she came, but that boat's going to go with her. You know, so we can't we can't control that. We can't control hunting pressure. You know, um, uh, that's another part of the chaos. There, there's people that don't hunt all year. They don't hunt any time, but they'll hunt during the rut. And 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 one of the reasons why is they've heard all the stories. You know, like we said, that so and so didn't even he wasn't even scared. He just went with his buddies. They just put him somewhere. He killed he killed the you know the biggest buck in his county. Mm-hmm. You hear about that stuff all the time. So a lot of people. You know, it's like when the Powerball gets up there to the multi-millions, you know, people that don't ever play the lottery are going to play the lottery. And the same thing going on with, 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 with the rut and deer season. People that don't hardly bow hunt or don't do anything, they, they get a little bit excited during the rut, and they're just hoping for the best. And when you get those people out, a lot of them don't have confidence in the places that they're sitting at because they know deep down they've not scouted or they've not been running cameras, they've not put in the work, and they'll sit there and they'll get cold get hit with that the grass is greener mentality where well, maybe I should go over here and look. Maybe I should go over there and they get out and they roam around and then they unintentionally, you know, jump bucks and those, you know, and they push them, you know, wherever. So there, you can't control that part of it. But the part you can control is putting yourself in a situation where you've got a really good chance of, 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 of seeing one that's out looking for those. So those yeah. no hot spots are the key places. And I'm a firm believer if you can put wireless cameras out and if you don't have wireless cameras, put the other cam, you know, the regular standard cameras out, and and just kind of monitor what's going on, and just try to put yourself in the best position that you can. So let's dive in deeper into what those right spots are. We, we've mentioned doe hotspots a couple times, yep. but let's talk a little bit more about specifically what kind of places you find to be those doe hotspots there in the rut. And then secondly, so part part one is where specifically or what specifically do these doe hotspots look like? And then number two mm. is how do you set up on them? Because lots of times we'll hear, oh, well, you know, hunt downwind of a doe bedding area. And that sounds yeah. great in theory, but how do you find the absolute right spot within the spot, like the, the killing spot down yeah. with the doe bed here? Can you answer me those that two all, things? That all goes to your scouting. I mean, that goes into your, your, your personal hunt experience and your scouting, you know, watching. If you've got, let's, let, one of my favorite places, obviously, is, a, is, is, you know, a preferred doe bedding area, you know, and, and, you know, where does are bedding at because that's where they're going to be at the majority part of the day. You know, deer are a lot of them are naturally nocturnal. There's a lot of activity goes on and stuff at night and all that kind of stuff. And but during the the bedding area, that's a, usually a daytime place. Now they do feed during the day. Stuff goes on during the day. They may get off the bed and you know go go feed and come back. But that bedding area is where they spend the bulk of their time. So that's where I want to be. I'm going to spend the bulk of my time in the doe bedding area. Now that's not the only place I'll hunt, but that's one. Of, if I can find a spot like that. And I've ran cameras, and I see the way the does, you know, how they go into it, you know, how they're entering it, how they're, and that's why I'm a firm believer in using multiple cameras. I mean, you know, one camera tells you a little bit, five cameras will tell you a whole lot more. And if I've got a doe bedding area, I may put two or three cameras on that doe bedding area so I can determine how the majority of the does, and, and deer don't follow a script. I mean, you know as well as I do, you've been in a situation where you think, well, this setup, I've got this tree stand here, the deer's coming from the west. This, you know, the buck is, that's how he comes in, and uh-huh. then you get up there and get set up, and the deer comes in from the east. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, you, they don't follow a script, but the more you know, the better off you are on, on how to set up on it. So if I know the does primarily, the majority of them are coming in a certain way to a bend area, they're exiting a certain way, and that tells me how, you know, I need to set up. And also what those cameras are going to tell me is, is are, you know, are the bucks coming through there? You know, what times are they coming through there? And when they come through there, how are they going in? 
Do they just go by and scent check the thicket from a distance? You know, get the wind in their favor and scent check it? Or are they actually going into the thicket? If they do go in, how they go in? If they get on the doe, how they going out? All that stuff will tell you, you know, if there's, I can't, you know, nobody can sit there and say, well, you find a doe bed in the area, you get down wind and you set up. Well, yeah, that may work and may not work. You, you, you've got to do the, you got to do the homework on it. You got to know how they're, how they're entering, how they're leaving, the, 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 you know, the, the prime times that they're, that they get off the bed. Like deer don't, a lot of people think that deer just come in, bucks and those. They come in, they feed at night, they come in, you know, if you're lucky, you get them a little bit after daylight and they go in, they lock down on the bed and then that's it. You know, they don't move till right at, you know, right before dark or after dark. And deer do do that a lot. But deer, I've, I've hunted bedding areas my whole life, and I can tell you that I've never in my life seen deer that go in before daylight, lay down in a bed, and they lay there till dark and don't move throughout the day. You, I mean, just put yourself in that situation. You, you and I have hunted all day. It's hard. It's one thing to say, yeah, I hunt all day oh, yeah. during the rut. But when you get in there two hours before daylight and sit down, and, and it's cold and whatnot, and you're sitting there, and you sit there throughout the entire day, and if it's one of those days where you're not seeing a whole lot of activity, it is hard to sit there like that all day long, all day till after dark. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. And I can tell you one thing. When you do do that, a couple of days of that, these guys will say, oh, I have trouble sleeping. Well, go hunt the rut. Go hunt the rut before daylight till dark. <laughs> yeah. I guarantee you at 6, you know, so it starts getting dark at 5 and 6 o'clock in the evening. I guarantee you when you get home, you won't want to eat or do anything. You just want to go to bed. I mean, I know it, that just, feeling. it just completely wears you out. And it's hard for the deer, too. I mean, think about it. Deer just sitting there all day. Well, a lot of them, what they'll do is they'll get up and they'll browse around, you know. You know, everybody wants to hunt food plots and hunt, you know, where the acorns are dropping. All that stuff's great. But a deer, a lot of their, you know, there's been studies showing a lot of uh, browse makes up a lot, a big portion of their diet. 
and they'll browse on sapling twigs and honeysuckle and, and you know, in acorns and stuff like that. They'll move around a little bit. So a lot of times deer will go down that have been pressured, will go down in bed before before it gets daylight. But a lot of times, you know, after day, mid-morning, they'll get up and stretch. They'll get up and stretch. Um, uh, bucks are notorious for getting up and, and, and going to the bathroom. You know, getting up and going to the bathroom, stretching their legs, browse a little bit. They may... They may work a scrape or do something. They go back and bed down four foot from where they were originally bedded, but they will get up and, and move a little bit. But no one, like I'm going back, got a little off track there, but going, you know, knowing where those those are bedded at, knowing how they typically go in, how they typically, you know, exit, um, is, is there mid-morning, you know, browse activity where they're getting up off the bed and moving around a little bit, and how they do it. And the more you can know about that, the better. That'll tell you exactly how to set up. All right, let's take a second here to thank our friends at Morton. Morton is the builder of wood frame steel sided buildings, and we're out on the back 40 right now as I speak. I am just dreaming. I've said this before, but I think a Morton building would be perfect up here. We're actually sleeping in a fifth wheel. We pulled a fifth wheel here that I was uh, lucky enough to get to borrow from my in-laws. That's great, but it'd be nice if we had a building here that could be our skin and shack that could be our bunkhouse that could store our equipment uh, if we get a tractor someday or something like that that would be perfect to store here our mower our utv morton building would be ideal for a scenario like this and it might be ideal for your hunting camp or deer property as well visit mortonbuildings.com to learn more we also want to thank weatherby weatherby is a three generation family business. These guys are in Sheridan, Wyoming now producing some of the most high quality precision rifles you can find. I've got one of their vanguards and I'm going to be putting it to the test in just a couple weeks. Opening day of firearm season in Michigan is November 15th. I'm going to be heading up north to our family deer camp, taking my 30 at six vanguard. And I'm excited because from what I've experienced so far, it's going to put the bullet right where I want it. And it's going to feel really good doing it. So if you want to learn more about Weatherby, you can visit weatherby.com. They've got some great videos over on YouTube as well. The story of their family business, the story of how they came to Wyoming in particular, I found really interesting. So check it out and happy hunting. You mentioned trail cameras a couple times there throughout about a lot, using that intel to, to really get that detailed information and getting the right setup or know the right time to hunt it. And you mentioned how you're using wireless cameras and all that. Can you elaborate a little bit on where, I guess, more detail on how you're setting up these cameras for the rut? Sounds like put them around doe bedding areas sometimes, but are you placing them on scrapes? Are you placing them on trails? Are you putting them in feeding areas and bedding areas and funnels or or what, like where are your cameras right now across your properties for the next two weeks? Well, for the next two weeks, my cameras are going to be on the mock scrapes that I've made on established scrapes on uh, travel corridors that connect uh, current feeding areas and bedding areas. And, and, uh, and if I'm finding the doe bedding areas, I'm putting them there because like I said, they're not, they're not actually, the bucks right now, the mature bucks, when I say they're roaming and scouting, they're not, they're not going to these doe hotspot areas, you know, at that point to try to get an extra snow because they know, I mean, the young bucks don't know. That's the ones that think, hey, I'm, I'm going to get to breed. I'm going to breed. They're, run, they're chasing everything down. They're chasing any doe that'll, that'll, that they see, they'll, they'll, run, uh, they'll run them down. They'll, try, they'll run them out of the country. That's why you start to see a lot of deer on the interstate get killed and stuff. And people say, well, it must be the rut. No, you've got these young bucks harassing them. That's what's going on. 
the older bucks know that that's not that's not what's going on right now. But what they are doing, they are going to those areas and they are scraping. They're leaving their scent. They're letting them know I'm here. They want the does to come in and leave their scent. Let them know that they're there. They want to know what other bucks are in the area. So they're making those milk runs, going to those places, and they're, and they're monitoring those does or where they're at, where they're going to be. And then when it gets a little bit closer, they'll go in those areas and scent check them and look for actual estrus does. And when they get on one, they'll take her away, breed her. Then they'll go get to another spot, go to another spot. They'll just keep on like a circle. They'll just keep going through those places and looking for the, for the does. So right now my cameras are on the travel corridors that are connecting uh, feeding areas to known doe bedding areas. I've got them over mock scrapes that I've made. I've got them over existing scrapes. And I'm running multiple cameras, and I'm trying to figure out as much as I can about about each buck. Like the buck I was telling you about the other day that came in and worked one of our uh, mock scrapes, he was doing it mid-morning. On one, he hit one spot mid-morning. He came off his bedding area, and he had it about mid-morning, like 10 o'clock in the morning. We got great video of him working the scrape. About two hours later, we got him a mile and a half away at a different spot working another scrape. So he was making that run. And then about three and a half hours later, we got him on another camera Jeez. going back closer to where he was bedding. And he had made a circle there. That's what he what he'd done. I'm not saying that, you know, the travel route's always going to be in a circle, but I'm just saying that particular scenario is like, like a circle. That's where he was, where he was going. And those cameras out, you know, tell me where I, you know, if I was going to hunt today, where I would probably need to, where I, where I need to set up at. How much detail do you pay attention to with those pictures? Are you looking at just direction of travel and time of day? Do you look at the conditions and try to correlate his behavior based off of something like wind direction or cold fronts yeah. or barometric pressure? Like, do you do you look at any of that? I'm kind looking of at detail? everything you just said. Every bit of that. Every it's like um. It's like putting together a puzzle, and, and every every piece of information is an important piece. You got to be able to put it all together, you know, put it all together. And I'll give you an example of that. You know, my son killed one of the first big bucks he killed. Um, this is a true story. <laughs> we got on a, it was during the Kentucky youth season, and um, we'd got on a, it's about a one fifty eight point. It was a giant deer. I mean, it was hard for me not to go bow hunting. I mean, because it was a big deer. <laughs> Yeah, and the, uh, the pattern, the pattern that we got on, you know, with it was, and this is, I mean, it might sound crazy, but you can, you can ask him <laughs> it, that, that particular buck was feeding on acorns. And, I, and once I got on him, I, I went and put a bunch of cameras out. So I knew kind of where he was staging at. I knew where he was bedding at. I knew obviously where he was feeding at and whatnot. And I had a pretty good pattern, but the problem was he was pretty much, you know, like most big bucks are, especially, you know, prior to the rut, he was, he was nocturnal. I mean, you know, we were hunting in a highly pressured area. You know, there's a lot of poaching that goes on around there. I mean, the the deer, they're like the big deer, are like ghosts. I mean, it's just it's a, you know, sad fact. But that particular deer, during that uh, early Kentucky youth season, he was going. Um, he would go bed before daylight, and on rainy days, this is, uh, this is I put this together. On rainy days, he would get off the bed about mid morning and would sneak into that acorn flat and eat those acorns. It, it, I mean, like clockwork. I mean, over about a three-week period, I noticed that the sometimes the only daytime activity was on rainy days, mid-morning. He would he would sneak in there and eat acorns for about a, you know thirty forty minutes, and he'd go back in bed. And um, as luck would have it, on the opening day of Kentucky youth season, uh, it, they were calling for rain. And I can remember my wife telling me, "You make sure make sure he doesn't get." You know, he he was probably at the time. I I'd say he was. 
I want to say 11 years old, somewhere around in there, you know, and mommy was being protected there. She's like, oh, you're going to get him wet, you know, do you, uh-huh. make, make sure, are you, are you on a blind? I said, no, we don't, we don't have a blind. I said, but he's got Gore-Tex rain outfit. I said, it's not going to be too cold. I said, we have to hunt during this rain because that's when that deer's moving, you know. She goes, well, I know you do that, but you know, he's just a little kid. And, and uh, she, she said, you, you, you get him where he, he won't even want to go. Well, I, I, that's definitely not what's happened. Now, I've, you know, I, I'm trying to keep him out of the woods is the hard thing now, you know, after <laughs> after doing all that. But anyway, cool. so we got set up. It was going to rain. And I told him, I said, just be patient. And But we got in there way before daylight just to make sure we didn't bump anything or anything like that. And I told him, I said, no, if – if what I'm thinking is, is right, I said, this deer will show up, you know, about mid-morning. I said, we may not see a whole lot of activity, you know, from, you know, at daylight on. But at mid-morning, he's, he's subject to show up. So we sat there. We were sitting on the ground. had a little makeshift blind. We were hunting in a highly pressured area. I didn't want to put up a blind where people, other people see you're hunting because there's a lot of people around here are notorious. When they see a blind or see a stand, they'll try to hunt as close to you as they can. They figure... That guy's put a stand or uh, blind there for a reason, so I'm going to try to hunt close. So I, I try to avoid that in those highly pressure areas, but we had a little makeshift blind, natural stuff I'd cut and, and you know, blended us in good. We could move. And we were sitting, we were sitting there. He's almost in my lap. I mean, sitting right beside me. We sat there and it rained and rained and rained and we were getting wet and weren't seeing a whole lot. And I think at 9.30 in the morning, which it was between 9 and 10, when we were getting most of the pictures on those rainy days, there he came, just like clockwork, and he killed wow. him. And I've, I've, you know, I've got all those cameras running. It'd be different. I just had one camera out and, you know, and was telling you what I was telling you, but we had, you know, probably 10 cameras on that, on that deer, you know, and I knew exactly what it, what it was doing. And uh, at that point, the only opportunity we had is when it was, it would come out when it was raining. And there's little stuff like that, no matter what time of season it is or what time of the year, what phase of the rut, you can put, uh, the deer have got habits. I mean, they've got, they've got habits and stuff that they do. There's tendencies that they follow. I mean, and the more cameras you get out, and the more stuff you piece together. And the good news is, is the cameras that are out today are unbelievable. I mean, uh, the one I just, the one I'm telling you about, the one of the ones I just now checked. It's got the barometric pressure, the wind. It'll tell you the wind direction, the phase of the moon, um, all that stuff's on there. Not not just the time and date and all that. And and it sends it to your phone where it's in real time. And and that saves me from having to go, you know, contaminate areas, a lot of, you know, scent and noise and stuff, trying to go and check cameras and stuff because I can check it right there on my phone. And if I've got to work Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and during that time, you know, during that three-day period, and I'm thinking about maybe calling in sick on Thursday and, and the three days prior to that, you know, that, that buck has done, you know, X, Y, and Z, then I know what he's doing probably on that Thursday. And, and when I, I take a sick day, I've got a good chance of, chance of killing him. You know, because I know what I'm doing in real time. I'm not having to take a day and go in the field and check a camera. I'm, I'm, you know, right at home. I'm knowing what, you know, knowing what's going on. The truth of the matter is, if I could afford them, every trail camera I'd have would be a would be a wireless cam. Yeah, they're very but, handy tool. Yep. But the bad thing is, where I'm at in the mountains, we got a lot of areas that you just don't have cell service. No matter if it's Verizon or AT and T or whatever, you just don't. Uh, there's just dead zones where you, you know, it, there, there's not any towers and. Sad thing that's usually where you know those are remote areas. That's usually where a lot of the big deer it's where are. The big deer, yeah. Yeah. So you don't you don't have the sale opportunity. But even with not that, you know, I've, I've probably got everybody knows that if they don't know what to get me for Christmas, or my birthday, or something like that, they buy me a trail camera. I mean, <laughs> and, 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 I, and I'll take all. I don't care what kind they are. If they're the cheap forty dollar kind, I'll take every one I can get because uh, they're a vital tool. Now, I'm not saying. Um, there is a mistake that people make, you know, by thinking I'm not hunting because I don't have, you know, the deer on that. The trail cameras don't get everything. I don't care what model they are or 
how expensive they are, what their trigger speed is, how sensitive they are. Uh, all trail cam, you, just because you put a trail camera up doesn't mean that you've got all the activity that's taking place where you've got that trail camera up. I mean, I've been in situations, been in the stand, and, and I've seen shooter bucks that were all around the camera but never got in front of it. You know, not intentionally. It wasn't like they knew that the camera was there or anything like that. It's just the way they were feeding, the way they were moving. They never, right. the does got in front of them and everything else, and, and the bucks didn't get in front. So you can't go solely on that by no means. But the more cameras you have out, the more clues you can gather, the more pieces of the puzzle you put together, you can you know, eventually solve it and you can get a shot. And so I try to, I look at all that. I look at that, you know, what was the barometric pressure when the, you know, when I was getting this daytime activity on three of my cameras. What was the bear make pressure? What was the wind direction that day? Why was that buck traveling that way? What what direction did he come in from? How long did he stay? Um, um, the trail cameras are great, but a lot of people they just don't they don't take advantage the full advantage of what all trail cameras can do for them. A lot of people will go out and they'll put up you know a trail camera, and they'll get a shooter buck at three o'clock in the morning, and they get them two or three nights, and it's twelve one two three o'clock in the morning. And they go put a stand up right there, and I'm thinking, well, unless you're going to spotlight that deer, that that's really not doing you a whole lot of good. No, you know. That's just showed you where that buck is at. So when I get a three o'clock in the morning picture, what I'm trying to do, I'm saying, okay, he's here at three o'clock in the morning. You know, I'll get out Google Maps and look at it. He come in from, you know, from the north. Where was he coming from? Why did it take him to three o'clock in the morning to get there? You know, was you know, where is he possibly betting at? Where is he possibly, where is he going to? What is he, is he going there to feed? I, you need to put all that stuff together, and that way, that way, you know more of what to do on, on how to set up. Yeah. Now, what about looking at pictures from past years? We we talked mm-hmm. to a lot of folks that are getting more and more into observing annual trends or annual patterns yep. of some kind. Is that something you key in on at all? Mm-hmm. Yep. There's places. I've got places here in my home state that the truth of the matter is, if I got laid up and put in the hospital or something, you know, weeks before or a month before, you know, the rut or gun season or whatever, that if I got able to go, even without scout or even checking the camera, there's places I know that with confidence I'd go and have a good chance of killing a buck because some of the some of the patterns just don't you know they don't change. They're in these certain areas during the rut, there always will be you know, and there's just big there's areas you can kill big bucks. I mean, I've got places that I've killed multiple big bucks out of, and yeah, I ran cameras and stuff on the thing, but the truth of the matter is, is I could have you know I, I'd have complete full confidence going and sitting in them even if I had never ran a camera and didn't know anything that was going on. They're just, you know, they're, they're, they're rut hot spots, places that, you know, that bucks are going to are gonna be. And especially true here in these mountains, um, the weight, because they, you know, our, I shouldn't even say that because flatland, rolling terrain, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's the, the particular terrain you're hunting, there's going to be features of that terrain that'll dictate how the deer travel from point A to point B. Food sources will change, hunting pressure will change, that stuff will change. But there's certain things that are going to be, you know, pretty much the same unless there's just some major, major, you know, things that happen like somebody comes into logs or, you know, or, or, uh, uh, food sources just completely change or something like that. You know, all that stuff can change somewhat, but there's a lot of stuff that'll be, you know, you hear about guys that kill big bucks out of the same stand every year, and and they and they'll brag about, it. yeah, I didn't scout, I didn't run a camera, didn't do anything, didn't put, I just I go up there and I sit in that stand on open morning of gun season, and for the last four seasons I've killed a buck, and 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 they've just got they've got a really good spot. I mean, they've got a spot that big bucks travel through, and and you know they can you can pull it off like that sometimes, but I like knowing the other way. I like knowing what's in there and. 
I'll take luck and I'll take a surprise. I like I like having a buck that shows up that you know been running cameras for three months and I, I, this buck was not on any of them. Also, he showed up during the run. I'll, I'll take that. I'll, I'll, I like that too. But at the same time, I, there's also as far as confidence goes, it's a whole lot easier to sit in the place from before daylight till dark. After you've worked hard all week, you're dead tired. Yeah, everybody knows how it is. I mean, you know, when you hunt and you hunt like we do. You go when you're tired. You go when you're not feeling good. If you have a day off, you better go. Mm-hmm. You can't kill one off the couch. You get you, you got to get out there. But one thing that'll help you stay longer in that stand is those cameras, knowing that there's a you know a, a 150 or 160 or 140 whatever it is you're wanting to shoot. If you've got that buck on camera and you've got a general idea of what he's doing, and and there's a, you know in your heart there's a good chance he's going to come through and give you a shot. It's a whole lot easier to stay all day. That's the truth. <laughs> uh, so we talked a little bit ago about doe bedding areas and doe hotspots, and mm-hmm. then we were kind of zeroing in on that with cameras and everything. But another one of those big rut, uh, I guess, rut hotspots that, that folks like talk about a lot are funnels and pinch points and mm-hmm. things like that. And yep. I'm wondering, with you hunting and kind of hilly terrain, um, I got to believe that's something that you key in on as far as like terrain yep. features can you can you give us the scoop on the types of terrain features that you key in on during the rut yep. and like the specifics of yep. how to set up on that kind of thing i sure can the uh what i try to do is uh, during the rut i'll try to find uh current feeding you know food sources current feeding areas and then i once i find them you know i'll, I'll put cameras on monitor it and, you, and you'll get uh, especially if it's open if um we don't have a lot of agriculture in the mountains, but we do have some fields, and I do put in food plots, you know, in places. But it could be acorns, it could be whatever. Wherever I find the food source at, I'll monitor that food source with cameras and see the does that are coming in, what times of day they're coming in, and whatnot. And then I'll try to find out from the food source where would they potentially be going, you know, the bed. And you can, you know, do some of that lake work. You can do it at home. You know, on Google Maps, look at it. Say, well, you know, there's a here's the feeding area, and over here's a clear cut. You know, it's overgrown. It's thick. You know, it, it's within, you know, a, a decent walk from there. It's away from the the food source. Most deer like bedding away from, you know, away from the food source if they can. And uh, you try to figure out well how they're going to get from point A to point B. Water some of those places. Then you go in there and and, and burn a little boot leather and walk around and find out. You look for sign. Look for the worn trails. Look for deer droppings. Look for leaves turned up. Look for tracks. How they travel in there. And then when you find a primary travel route that they're using, put some cameras on it and see what activity is going through. What times of day they're going through. Try to connect it to the bedding area and do the same thing there. Put some cameras and stuff on there. Um, one of my favorite places, uh, some of my favorite spots to hunt, you know, hilly to mountainous terrain. We've got some steep mountains. I mean, I live in the heart of the Appalachian Mountains. We've got some mountains that go four or five benches up. I mean, you're at the bottom looking up, and you're thinking, you know, there's no way I'm going to walk to that top. And then, like, their turkey season, one will gobble four benches up, and next thing you know, you're halfway up the mountain. There you same go. With, you know, except <laughs> they deer hunting, you know, you... You, you're seeing well the pressure's coming from down here. Most people are lazy. I can't get a fuller up there. Most people aren't going to walk up there. And then back in your mind, you're thinking, if I was a big buck, that's where I'd go. Then you go into those areas, you start finding big rubs and that kind of stuff. But more of the, some of the places I like hunting um, from right now all the way through, actually, the breeding fra- uh, phase of the rut is like um, the natural travel corridors in these mountains, like saddles. Like you have a saddle or a, or a gap. And um, um, these deer on these mountains, the way these mountains work around here, a lot of it's been uh, over the years. We've got we've had some, uh, you know, coal mining was big, and they've they've stripped some of these, which is actually 
it's actually been a good thing for the deer because you've got that transition in between hardwoods into open coal strips, and um, they they reclaim. They put all the olive trees on them, and those berries, the deer eat them, turkeys eat them, and they got like bedding in them. And there's uh, the clover and, and and stuff like that. So you got that transition in between hardwoods into into coal strip and stuff like that. And uh, you could be on top of the mountain. There'll be a holler down on the right side that's that's full of. Uh, you know, full of reclamation trees, and there's clover fields and stuff like that that they go down in on the other side of the mountain. There's a, a completely different, you know, place that also might be a coal strip or might be a farm that's got farmland and stuff on it and whatnot. And then if you drove to those places by the road, it might take you 45 minutes. But on top of the mountain, you could drop down to either one and five. <laughs> I mean, that, and, and, and deer know that. So these deer in the mountains, they can cover a lot of ground, a lot of different ground by by the mountains by traveling on top of the mountains and then dropping off in the you know, in in uh, we say hollers. I'm a hillbilly, but the correct <laughs> pronunciation is hollows. So the, we call them hollers. But they they can drop down in one holler and go down those those and come back through and go down to another. And that goes back to that milk run tactic I was talking about. They'll go to those places, and that's why you always hear about these people saying, "I've ran cameras all year. You know, I've got a handful of decent bucks and." Then, from you know, from last week till now, there's there's been four new shooters show up, you know, and and I don't know where they came from. Well, they've you know they've come in from a different area. They've had a different core living area, but they know that there's does in those areas and it's it, within reach, and they're going to go in there and you know check for those does. So that's what's going. Saddles and gaps are good. Uh, 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 ridges, points. And I'm hunting up in Illinois. You know your your textbook, your your, your bottlenecks and pinch points, all that stuff. All that stuff's good. But there's bottlenecks and pinch points stuff everywhere. The key is to find the bottlenecks and pinch points and the, and the saddles and the gaps, all that stuff that connect, you know, a feeding area to a bedding area that the does are traveling in because those are areas that when things start cranking, the bucks are going to be in, you know, looking, looking for does. Now, what about setting up on those kinds of spots? So you find the right, you find the right pinch point of some kind. Maybe it's a, mm-hmm. uh, maybe it's cover getting shrunk down to a narrow spot between two fields, or maybe it's right. uh maybe it's a saddle in the mountains. You find yep. that pinch. How yeah. do you go about picking the spot to hunt on that feature? Like what's what going through your mind when you pick that tree? What's on my mind, the first thing that's on my mind is, is a, are deer using it? You know, are the deer using it? When are they, you know, when are they using it? How are they using it? How are they, how are they going from, are they going from east to west, north to south, which direction, stuff are they traveling in? And one of the most important things that's on my mind during that time is once I figure that part out is how am I going to access that area, how am I going to hunt it, and how am I going to exit that area without bumping deer in the process. I see, that's one of the big, you know, deer, big deer aren't, aren't stupid. I mean, they didn't get big by being stupid. You know, they're, they're, they're smart. Big bucks are smart. And they can pattern you easier than you can pattern them. So if you're not taking any uh, any steps to try to figure out, you know, how can I enter, hunt, and exit these areas without bump during the process, you're shooting yourself in the foot because they'll pattern you. They'll figure out. That's when you start getting more nighttime pictures than anything. You're just like, well, that deer's coming by my stand, but everything's after dark. Well, more than likely, you've hunted that stand or hunted that blind with the wrong wind direction, or you've entered it the wrong way, or you've exited it the wrong way, and you've educated him. You know, that buck's educated now, and it, it, it's going to figure out. I, it, it doesn't mean that that buck's going to leave the country. You know, it it, it takes a whole whole lot for it to get a deer to just leave a, a core area. But what it will do, that deer that deer will know that you know during these times of day, I do not need to be coming through here because there's a predator here that's trying to ambush me. Yeah. I, I do not need to come through here. So, but I've my, any spot I hunt, regardless if it's pre rut, rut, post rut, whatever it is, I try to figure out 
what the deer are doing, how they're getting in there, how they're leaving, why they're going through there, what times of day, how can I get to that, that area without bumping during the process and educating them. And a lot of times, I mean, it, it just seems like it works out this way. The easiest route to your stand is not always the best route, you know, to where you're hunting. And I mean, it might be the quickest, might be the easiest, but if you're going through deer, if you're bumping deer that are bedded or you're going through, you know, highly sensitive areas and, and, and you know, when you're alerting those deer to your presence, you're, you're, you're doing more harm than good. Uh, but a lot of people, uh, a lot of people do that. They, you talk to these guys that they don't take in, you know, they have, I, I, anytime I hunt a spot, I'm, I'm on the weather channel website. I'm, I'm going by hour by hour forecast. I'm looking at the wind direction, you know, and it's sadly, it's not always right, but I'm at least doing that where I've got an idea, you know, what wind I need to have to hunt that area, what the deer been doing. So I, I know all that, how I need to get in, how I need to get out. But a lot of these guys will see hot sign or throw up a, They'll throw up a stand or a blind, and they'll they'll hunt it every weekend. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't matter what's going on; they hunt it every weekend, and they're they're shooting themselves in the foot because those those deer are getting educated on that, and they're knowing the key times that you're hunting when you're in there, and they're feeling that pressure, and they're going to make they're going to adjust their schedule, you know, in order to survive. Their, their pattern's going to change in order to survive. And that's what that's what they do. Yeah. So you pick the right way to get in and out to these spots. You're mm-hmm. thinking about how the deer are using it. Now, how do you pick the tree? Well, I pick the tree that's going to give me uh, the best chance. Or it doesn't have to be a tree. You know, I hunt a lot off the ground. I've taken a lot of big bucks off the ground. I prefer to hunt out of a tree, but that's not always, you know, possible. Um, I'll, I'll, what I try to do, I try to if, I, if it's a tree stand set up, I try to find an area that's going to give me the most opportunities to get a shot within, you know, within comfortable bow range. That's that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know. Um, you got to make sure, especially right now, we've got a lot of leaves and stuff on the trees. The leaves are, are, you know, are starting to fall a little bit, but we the foliage is still pretty thick. So you can get away with your tree stand steps, you know, put, throwing up a tree stand, but you've got you to take into mind, you know, here shortly the leaves are going to start falling, the trees are going to be bare, and um, you stick out like a sore thumb, you know, in some of these places. You've got to have backdrop cover. Especially, you know, we do a lot of filming. You know, I've done a lot of filming over the years. I've had my hunts filmed and whatnot. And you don't just have to hide you. You've got to hide you and a cameraman. And so you've got two stands. You got double scent, double the noise, double the movement. So when I hang my tree stands, I, I take a drill. I'll take a drill and I'll cut cedar limbs, you know, pine limbs, anything like that. That's going to give me cover. That's going to, you know, it's not going to lose leaves. Even when it turns brown, it's still going to have cover. And I'll I'll drill them into the tree, you know, around me. And I'll break up my outline good. And very seldom do I get bumped up in a tree. So I'm going to find a place that's in bow range, and then I'm going to go ahead and and, and and go ahead and do that stuff now. Even with leaves and stuff up, I'm going to go ahead and do that now. Where I don't have to do it later. I'm not in there making noise, hanging up them limbs. I'll hang them now, even though I've got plenty of cover right now. I'll still do that. Every tree stand of mine, you'll see that there's cedar limbs and or pine limbs and stuff in there to help break up that line of myself and, and my cameraman. And I'll do that. You know, that's what I do. And then I'll map out, you know, watch I've got a little bit ahead of myself, you know, backing up. I always map out you know, before I even hang the stand of how I'm going to enter it and how I'm going to exit it. You got to have, you got to have a game plan on how you're going to do that. If you're going to a stand and, and, or a blind or whatever, and you're bumping deer from the time you go in the woods. And then when you leave your bumping deer again, you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're just, like I said, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're decreasing your chances of getting a shot opportunity at a mature buck because, 
like I said, they didn't they didn't get big by being stupid. They're not gonna they can sense something pressure, they can feel it, they can pattern you, they can figure that stuff out. So you've got to take all that in mind when you're when you're choosing the right setup. Yeah. What about this scenario? What if you pick your tree, you put your branches up there, you're downwind of wherever you think the buck's gonna come through, but somehow that big old buck comes rolling through the saddle. He comes over the rise. He starts dropping down towards you. And somehow, despite all your best efforts, he picks you off in the tree. Or mm-hmm. or maybe you drew your bow back and the arrow fell off or something happened yep. and you spook a buck. But it's November yep. 10th, let's say. Yep. It's the it's you know the, the rut's pumping. Right. You spook that buck out of there during the rut. What are your yep. thoughts on that situation? In the rut, you know, there's, there's a couple different ideas here like some people think oh you know the bucks are crazy this time of year you can you could go right back in there and maybe they'll kill him yeah. or other people might say no he's never going to walk past that tree again for another month what do you think yeah. about spooking a buck during the rut what do you what, what's the impact going to be i think every scenario is different i mean it just depends on there's so many factors on that i mean um, how you spooked the buck. I mean, did you shoot at him with a bow and, and, and it, was it a clean miss or did you, did you, you know, did you scrape some hair off of him where he felt like he got shot? Sometimes, you know, somebody misses a, uh, I know there's a hunter here in our county that had missed a, a good buck, um, the weekend before, um, and missed it and, uh, come in the, the, well, actually the weekend of the hunt, it was a, uh, she, 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 she shot the deer Saturday, missed it, but it was a clean miss, didn't hit hair, didn't anything, clean miss, but the deer blew and ran off. And the next day, uh, she'd have me understands for that particular wind direction. And she was off from work and she wanted to go. She went and the deer come back through there about an hour later than it did the day before and she killed it. Uh-huh. I mean, right out of the same, the same tree. And at the same time though, I've had situations myself where stuff like that's happened with the wind. The, you know, when I hunt Illinois and hunt Kansas, hunt those places, it's a little bit easier to hunt the wind than it is here in the mountains because the the wind swirls. I mean, it, it, it might be a you know a northwest wind or or whatnot, but at some time during the day, it'll 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 it swirls and depending on the terrain, it bounces off stuff, comes back. I mean, you can get it's it's real tricky, you know, hunting the wind when you're hunting hilly and and, and mountainous terrain. And you know, I've I've had deer that the wind swirled right at the wrong time, and and I'm I'm I guess I, I sometimes a lot of people say I go overboard with scent control, and I, and I try to, but you know, no matter what, nothing's a hundred percent. I mean, despite what some advertisement I tell you, I mean, I, I do everything. I wash my my clothes with the you know with the, the no scent detergent. I, I wear no scent uh, deodorant. I, I shower. I, I wear rubber boots. I don't put my clothes on until I get in the field. I do all that kind of stuff. And and a lot of times it you know most times it works, but there's some some cases where you're going to get you're going to get I don't care how good you are you're going to get by how high you hunt up the tree you know thermals change drop I mean there's a, there's a million things that can happen you know where a deer can you know can detect you and and bust you and I've had situations where the you know the deer it, it changed the routine a little bit I've had it where it changed it, changed it completely so every every hunt situation is a little bit a little bit different you know. And I guess one of the, the best ways to figure that out is if you have bumped a deer, just keep your cameras on it and and see if it if it's if it's changed its routine any. So like if you and I were hunting this weekend and we went to a place and something you know something happened, we were up in the stand and and right when the buck was coming in, something fell out of the tree stand and bumped it, or or the wind switched and it it, it winded one of us and, and it took off. And we were going to hunt the next weekend. What I would want to do is monitor those cameras through the week and see, well, did that, 
you know, us bumping him, did that change his routine? Did it make him come in there after dark? Did he completely change his travel route? Did you know what happened? That'll tell you better what you need to, you know, what you need to do. But there was a, I mean, it, every bug, every, like I said, every situation is different. I remember, I remember not long ago, I can't remember the, I may get the, the names of the show or anything wrong, but they were, I think it might have been Lee and Tiffany. I think that Lee had shot a, a buck, and it may not have been them, but I, I'm, I'm thinking it's been several years ago, but the, but he actually shot the buck and hit it. And um, it was during the rut, and it was hounding the doe, and um, they couldn't they couldn't find it. And um, went back, got in the, he was sick, sick about it. Went back, got in the same stand that he was just sick. I mean, his man was just out there just to be out there because it was, you know, during the rut and whatnot. And the buck comes through there, and he kills it, chasing another doe. And it was, it was, it was wounded. You know, and it was still chasing chasing those, and he killed it. it might not, I, I'm thinking it was Leontivity, but it may have been another show. But I, um, a friend of mine um, that hunts up in Kansas, you know, he's, he's killed a lot of big, lot of big bucks. He's not a TV hunter. He's not a rider. He's not in the industry or not, but he's just a, a good friend. He's killed, you know, killed some you know, good deer. And he told me a story similar that happened to him, you know, several years ago, where he'd made a, he'd made a bad shot with a bow, and um uh, uh, and was just sick over it, and um, had spent two days looking for the deer, couldn't find it. You know, clawed up, couldn't find it, and uh, he'd hit a limb and hit it, hit it uh, uh, way back and high, and uh, didn't go through, you know, any of the vitals or anything. But I mean, the deer was still hit, and it bled pretty good, and wasn't getting it on camera, and was just sick over it, and thought about not even going hunting the next weekend. I mean, just, I mean, just depressed about it, but he went back, got in the stand, ended up killing the deer. I mean, the deer come through there on, on another doe. Wow. And um, when they're in the rut, their adrenaline stuff's going, and, and I, I was doing a hunt one time in Illinois, uh, years and years and years ago, and um, Craig Morgan was there, and uh, Alex Rutledge, and uh, that's back when uh, they were all with HS and everything, and invited me up to, to hunt with them, and, and Alex killed them. Um, he killed a buck over a decoy about this time of year. He came into a decoy fighting mad and came up to the decoy. I'm pretty sure it attacked the decoy, and Alex shot it with a bow. And um, I don't think it had attacked it yet. It was coming up to it, was coming up to, it to attack it. And all bristled up. I mean, just drool coming out of its mouth. It was Frankenstein-looking walk, and, and he shoots it and um, makes a good shot on it. I mean, smacks it. I mean, goes right through it. And you could see on the footage, the deer standing there. It it jumps a little bit where it got. It felt the impact of there, but didn't even know it'd been hit. It's sitting there just gushing blood out both sides. It lowers its head and attacks the decoy. It, it thought the decoy did that to it. It thought that the other bucket somehow did that to it, and it attacked the attacked the buck and it, it it rolled it and and it got to do that. It kind of jumped back and was looking and sidestepping and looking, going circling around like it was going to hit it again. And its legs started getting a little bit wobbly, and it dropped down and died. It didn't even know it was. It didn't even know it was it. Wow. So I mean, but like I said on that stuff, you just you, there's always exceptions to the rule. I, I, that's one thing I have learned about hunting in general and and bass fishing or anything else. You know, I, over the years I've had theories in my head that have been proven year in and year out, wrote about them and all that kind of stuff, and and thought I had a pretty good grasp on everything. And then I'll find an exception to the rule, where you know that that's not always 100 percent of the time. That's not always what happens. Yeah, um, wild animals. Yeah, well, I, I give you an example of that. I mean, not, not to change subjects here, but um, hunting around here, I'd always believed and that big, big bucks that have survived hunt pressure, survived all the poaching were smart, you know, elusive, a lot of them, you know, nocturnal most of the year, all that kind of stuff, that those deer had a tight core area that they stayed in, 
and that's what kept them safe. They knew that area, you know, like you and I know our, our house. They, they knew every part of it. They knew how to travel. They knew where the pressure comes from. They knew how to avoid the pressure. They knew where to bed, and they stayed in that general area. And, you know, the only thing that changed in that pattern was where they were feeding at, and it obviously changed during the rut, you know, when they were going to look for those and that kind of stuff. But, I mean, they had that core area that they stayed in, and I always assumed that it was uh, a tight, a tight area. Well, the last four or five years, uh, my son's killed a couple bucks, and I've killed a couple bucks that had unique racks that had, you know, like a kicker on the G2 or or uh, double brow tines or, or bladed, you know, something that you can identify. I mean, a lot of big deer, a big typical, like you know as well as I do, we could look, you could get online and punch in uh, big uh, typical eight-point whitetail bucks, and you'll have hundreds of pictures, and, and a lot of them you could lay right on top of the other one. A big yeah. typical eight, well, you know, there'll, there'll be a hundred deer that you find that look like twins, you know that. But if they've got a unique rack, you know, like with a, with a bladed G2 or a, a G3 that's got a kicker point or a double braille, you know, it's very seldom that you'll see another deer just identical to that. And we had pictures. He killed a real big buck, and I killed a real big buck, and we had a ton of trail cam pictures of them. And uh, Hunter's worst nightmare, you go through the place where you're getting pictures of them consistently, then three or four days go by and you don't have a picture of them. So around here, when that happens, the first thing we start, you, you think of the worst. You think somebody's snuck in there and they spotlighted it. You know, it's it's went across the road, some other guy shot it. You all these you know nightmare scenarios start unfolding, and and what's happened is that buck's just moved to that area. And like I was saying, what defied my my theories on on these tight core areas that two or three different bucks that we've killed, other hunters in our area after we've killed them have came up to us and said, man, I had trail cam, trail cam pictures of that deer, I believe. And you get up with them, they, sh- they send you the trail cam pictures and look at them, and it's your deer. And, uh, for example, one of the ones my son killed, I got, we, we had it on cameras three days in a row. And this is not, I know people will say, well, yeah, during the rut, you know, they go everywhere. Yeah, their, their, their core living area does expand during the rut. I'm not, not doubting that at all. I've always known that. But, the, this guy was getting pictures of the deer way before the rut, way before the cruising and scouting stage, you know, phase of the rut. Right, so looking for the does. I mean, just when they should be locked in a textbook feeding to bedding area. And on one of the properties I'm talking about, it's 1,100 acres locked up. Uh, there's, there's, we control it. There's no hunting pressure on it. I mean, we got food plots. There's, there's hardwoods. There's, there's thickets. There's alamata trees. There's apple trees, persimmon trees, uh, mineral licks. Two ponds, a creek. I mean, the, uh, any kind of terrain or, or atmosphere a buck would want to be in, it's got. It could do whatever it wants to do in that area, zero hunting pressure. And yet those deer, that deer, particular deer, was leaving way before, like I said, way before the rut or anything like that, way before it was even thinking about those. It would disappear for two or three days, and we start thinking something happened to it. And during that time, that guy would get it on camera. It was it was six or seven miles away from from uh, you know where we were hunting at, Jeez. and I know it was I know it was that deer. I mean, it, that, that particular deer had a kicker on its G two and had one side had a double braille. I mean, and the guy had daytime pictures of it, and then he would he would he would get it on camera for three or four or five days, and during that time we were getting it back on camera, and that deer was leaving not because of hunting pressure, not because of food, because any food it could have been getting up there it had on on the, on the property that we were at, but sometimes they just roam and get out and they and they move around, you know. Like people, or some people stay in a, one state their whole life and hardly ever leave their county unless they, you know, unless they have to. And then there's other people that just like to get out and roam. And I think deer nature that way too. But all those years, I thought, you know, that these big bucks stayed in the tight core area. But I've had we've killed four or five bucks here that other people for sure have had on camera 
uh, prior to the rut and even during the post rut. And I'm not talking about during the secondary part of the rut. I'm talking about during the post rut when they really should be locked down to a feeding and bedding pattern. And they're, you know, we get way out of the area that I thought was a core area. So they, they move a lot more than what I, what I thought. So the thing about deer hunting is, is it, it, if you, if you're one of these people, you've killed some big deer and, and you, you get cocky and you think you know everything about about deer hunting. I, I've never felt that way. I try to learn. Every time I go in the woods, I try to learn something. And I do have theories that, I, that I've held true and, and whatnot on, on patterns and behavior and, and, you know, and tendencies and stuff like that. But there's always exceptions to the rule. Always yeah. exceptions to the rule on that. So when you, if you think you know everything there is to know, then you're, you're, you're hurting yourself as a deer hunter because – you need to grow and you need to learn every because and, and you need to have it in the back of your head and be open-minded about stuff there's always exceptions to the rule and stuff so speaking of exceptions to the rule then and i, I think you're 110 percent right on that um speaking of exceptions to the rule is there anything that uh-huh. you do during the rut that people would think is outside of the ordinary that would be an exception to the rule is there anything that you do that other people think is crazy or just funky, uh, some creative that you've know. got. The um, I guess the which we kind of hit on it a little bit. The um, one thing I do different on those call scenarios, I will try to simulate like if the buck's chasing the doe, I kind of do that, and I kind of. And when I first started doing that, the and like I said, you feel goofy doing it. And here you are stomping through the woods, and you're grunting and doing an extra stove bleat and whatnot, and you're, you're breaking sticks, you're doing kind of stuff, and you just feel like a moron after doing it. Like, <laughs> I hope nobody's seeing this. But it adds realism to your to your setup, and it and it, and it actually you know it actually works. So that's one thing that I, that I do different. But it goes against every. I'm always you know I kind of got like a sniper mentality. I want to get into a place, you know, quietly. I want to take the shot, make one shot, make a ethical shot, make it count, and get out. You know, mm-hmm. not make any not make any noise. I may hit my dad. Won't be one in that area. Maybe one more than one buck. I want to get in, get out. Uh, I try. I always. We talked about. You know, getting to your stands and stuff. I always I take the time to to cut out any any briars, uh, clean paths that I can use to get in there and not make any noise. I even use a flashlight. I get my areas without a flashlight. I I, I want to go in. I want to sneak in. I don't want to disturb anything going in or disturb anything going out. And that goes against every fiber of my body when you get out there and you're breaking sticks and you're grunting and you're making that noise. And because in the back of your mind you're thinking I'm I'm screwing this place up. You know, I'm making all this rack and all this noise. And, you know, I, I probably ran a deer off. That's, that's what goes through your head. But if, like my son said when he was filming me do that at the time, he said, Dad, I said, you know, because he, he, he's been in the stand and has, has witnessed that. He's witnessed, you know, a buck chasing a doe, doing a tendon grunt, and hearing a doe doing extra stove bleak and all that kind of stuff. And when you simulate that and you're breaking the sticks and you're, and you're but you go rustle through the leaves and you're trying to sound like deer, you're trotting through, they're trying to sound like, sound like a deer, and he said, you know, if you close your eyes, that sounded identical to that. And, and it, you know, and it works sometimes. So that's one of the guess, I guess, of one of the things I do that's kind of, that's kind of off the wall. Um, the, uh, one of the other things I do, I think that, that you'll be a lot different. And a lot of people talk about hunting all day. And, and, you know, and they really don't. They'll hunt, you know, before, they'll get there before daylight and they'll hunt up till, you know, two or three o'clock in the day, and they'll, they'll wear down, get hungry, and they'll, and they'll leave. But I do a lot of a lot of sets from from before daylight to after dark, and it's tough. I, I, I mean, it's it, it's tough to do those. But but I mean, during the rut, you need. I mean, you know, pre-rut, no, you don't have to hunt daylight to dark. You know, you do, you need to follow your cameras. They're more on a predictable lockdown, you know, pattern, feeding the bed pattern. But 
But when, it, when the rut's in, there's breeding activity, and especially the fact that there's so many other hunters in the woods, you need to stay in there as long as you can stay in there. If you can hunt the daylight to dark, do it. You, you need to stay in there because you just never know what's going to happen. Hard to uh, hard to argue with that. Just if there's nothing else that comes down down to it during the rut, it's being in the tree, being there to yep. be present for the opportunity when it comes. Yep, that's exactly right. You can't kill them at home. You can't yeah. shoot them off the couch. You, you need to be out there. And, I, and in the past, I've hunted with, um, I've had pneumonia two times in my life. And uh, one of the times was during, during gun and I hunted with it, and I, and I, which is crazy. I don't recommend that. I, mean, I, could, I could kill you. <laughs> but I did it because, you know, um, you know, I, I am an outdoor rider. I have done TV stuff and all that kind of thing. But I've also been a teacher my whole life. And, and, and being a teacher, you get X amount of sick days and X amount of personal days and whatnot. And I went to school, you know, definitely sick. Because my principal knew when I was when I was in the classroom that if I called in sick, I was either going fishing or going hunting. I mean, <laughs> they knew that. They, I they, I didn't have to lie to. I never did tell them, hey, I'm sick. And, and, you know, technically you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to take, you know, sick days to kind of do that stuff. But you accumulate all those sick days, and for yours, you know, you can use them. So sure. I mean, it's not counting against anybody. So, but my principal knew I didn't have to fake a cough, or, or <laughs> they knew <laughs> that if Travis Walter's calling in, that he's he's definitely going deer hunting or or turkey hunting or bass fishing or something like that. And um, so I went to school definitely sick to save my days, and and I've hunted. You can't always control me. I've hunted. Uh, I used to coach basketball, and and uh, I was assistant coach on the varsity one year, and. And uh, played basketball my entire life, coached it, did all that kind of stuff. And uh, at the time I was coaching, our second string was a lot weaker than the, the first five. So the varsity coach would want me to take the, the second string and play, you know, on their team and, and, and scrimmage the, the first five. And, uh, you know, because I, I was, you know, a pretty good player and whatnot, so he'd use me for that. And I'd done that a lot, enjoyed doing that. It's a good exercise for deer hunting and everything. But I remember one year uh, wasn't expecting on doing that. And I didn't have my high top basketball shoes with me, and he said, uh, "Need you go today?" We, he said, we, "I know practice schedule. We haven't planned on on doing this." But he said, "You know, I, I, I decided you know there's some things going on wrong. I need to see it, you know, in a game scenario. So I need you to go today." I said, "Coach, I ain't got. I don't have my high tops." He said, "He said, well, we'll just go, you know, a quarter or two. He said, I just need to see a couple things." He said, and "He said you, you should be all right." Played all whole life. I've had stitches. Where I've dove on loose balls, been elbowed, all that kind of stuff. Never had a turned ankle. As aggressive as I played, never had a turned ankle. But I'd be daggone if I didn't. But the third play into into a, a, a scrimmage, and I turned my ankle so bad. I mean, it swelled so bad I couldn't get my shoe on. Uh. And uh, but I got my boot on. I, I, that's, it happened on a Friday, Saturday morning. I hunted and I killed a deer. And my cousin, I never forget this. My cousin came up to me and and he drove in that place separately. And back uh, then, where we signed up, we didn't have cell service. We had the the you know the radios, the Walkman radios type deal. And, and I, I drove up to my killed one. I was headed out, and he said, well, "I'll meet you back at the truck." And I consider pulling that deer. And he said, "But what's wrong? Did you hurt yourself?" And I said, "I hurt myself Friday." I told him what I did. I, I, you could just—he'd probably think, "Well, it's not, not not too bad." Well, I pulled my my boot off to show him it, and just—he said, "You are." He said, "I cannot believe you're in the woods." He said, "How are you even walk? I mean, it looked like a balloon." <laughs> But you know you gotta you gotta do what you gotta do. You know I could have laid there at home, felt sorry for myself, some ankles hurt, or you know I'm I'm wore out. I've had a rough week at work, and and we've all been there. We've all been. It's hard to work hard all week and then get up even earlier on a Saturday, you know, and hunt. But if it's during the rut, you know, and if you love deer hunting like we do, you, you you've got to be out there. I mean, it's just it's all there is to it. Yes. Perseverance will kill you more deer than 
then 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 about anything else you can do. You gotta you've gotta you just gotta put yourself in a in a situation where you can get a shot opportunity and you sure can't do that at home. Yeah, that that might be the best rut hunting advice uh we've had yet and that's probably yep. a pretty fitting place to wrap it up too. So that'll work. Travis, this has been this has been great. I've I've really enjoyed it. So so thank you for uh, taking really this time. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I could do this. I could do this all day long. I mean, I, uh, I kind of get excited sometimes. You talk about what you, when you, you bring up a certain scenario or something. About twenty different things run through your head. You just can't <laughs> just can't cover it all. But I think we've done a pretty good job today. You know, covering covering you know the tactics that people need right now to get on a get on a big one and kill one all the way up through the the end of the road so yeah and i uh i'm gonna try i'm heading out probably about a half hour and head out and get after it myself and i might try that rub and run or grunt and rub idea uh if i see my yep. big my big target buck off in the distance so i'll let you know if that works yeah keep me posted man i hope you I hope you knock him in the dirt appreciate it, travis well if folks want to read your writing or see the things you're up to is there any particular place they should keep an eye out for that in the future yeah there's a i might uh do a lot of articles from north american whitetail do outdoor life do stuff for the buck zone outdoor life um you know stuff like that and then um I, I, you could probably just google my name i think a lot of the some of the shows or if they've aired on the tv and stuff they they rerun them on where you can get them online and what some of my hunts and stuff are on they're online where you can look them up and, and, and watch them and that kind of thing. But um, that you usually if you Google my name, you can pull up some articles and stuff. They can read a lot of the magazines. You know, well, they they put a lot of them, put them online after they come off the off the stand out of the magazine. They put them online. So Perfect. there's a lot of stuff out there like that. So all right, well, I'll uh, but, I'll make sure to let folks know they can they can find all that. And I've been following you for years and I've always enjoyed your your perspective and the articles you've written. So well, thanks I've for doing that work. With and, you, man. I've, I've done the same with you. I've, 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 I've tried to follow you. I, I didn't. I didn't realize how good your podcast was. There, I'm gonna start listening to it a lot. I, it's uh, it's uh, to you know, allowed me on to do it. I mean, I, I started doing some research. I looked at man, you've got a good thing going. I'm gonna definitely be checking it out from here on out. Yeah, I appreciate that. We've uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's definitely given me an opportunity yeah. to learn from a lot of great hunters. And uh, and I'd say today we added one more to the list. So, yep. thank you again. Well, do you want to? you want to hear one joke before we go? One, oh, one deer hunt joke. Yeah, let's hear a deer hunt joke. All right, I'll give you a deer hunt joke. There was a these two guys were hunting this certain area, and they got on this this monster buck, Boone and Crockett buck, you know, buck of a lifetime, and. Yeah, they both had permission to hunt the area and and everything, and and they were they decided that you know that they would flip for it. Who was going to get to kill it? You know, the other one would film it. They wanted to film it. They weren't filming for a show or anything like that. They just wanted to have it. You know, have that hunt as a as a keepsake. So they flipped for it. One guy won, another guy lost, and they were going to hunt. So the, that weekend, um, was up in the weekend of gun season. So they go in there and they 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 uh, I've got a blind up overlooking this little winter wheat field. It's adjacent to this road. It goes up against this big thicket, and that buck had been coming out right there near the road, been coming right out, you know, in the in the morning times of feeding and 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 you know, sit checking for does, looking for does and whatnot. And they've had it on camera, so they were just you know fired up about Saturday because they knew that you know they were going to get it on film and the guy was going to get to shoot it. So they get in there right before daylight, get set up, they're up there in a in a shooting house. They put them a big shooting house up and they're gonna do it right. You know, it didn't matter if it rained or whatever, they're gonna get out there. So they're out there in the shooting house and everything's going on and, and uh starts breaking daylight. First part of the morning they seen some does, whatnot and and a little activity and got up that mid morning, you know, and they'd been getting a lot of mid morning activity on their trail cameras, so I thought, you know, this this is gonna be it. Sure enough, ten thirty, eleven o'clock in the morning, Buck steps out, there it is. 
are you, are you on it? Are you on it? The guy gets the camera. Yeah, I'm on it. I'm on it. I'm on it. And he, and he said, let's get some footage of it. So it's out there. He comes out, you know, real cautious, like, I'm looking around and goes up there and goes up to a doe and, and, uh, comes up in behind her and she kind of trots off and, and it's standing out there and they're getting all that on film. And the guy clicks his safety off. He's got his gun up on the shooting sticks and he's getting ready to shoot. And he looks and up to the corner of the eye. Here comes a bunch of traffic down that road. The deer were used to that traffic. You know, their backs were to that road, so they, they didn't freak him out or anything, but he looked and it was a, it was a funeral procession. You know, flags up on the, on the car, lights on, you know, other cars are pulling off the side of the road. It's going up through there. The guy looks at it, looks back at through the scope, looks back at the cars again, looks back at his scope, and his buddy's thinking, "Why is he not? Why is he not shooting it? Why is he not shooting it?" So he he looks back at the at the funeral session again, stops, takes off his hat, puts it up against his chest, bows his head, and, and starts praying. You know, doing a little silent prayer, and his buddy just can't believe it. You know, this guy's a diehard hunter. They've looked for it all season. There the buck is. He, he could shoot it, and 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 he's doing. They just couldn't believe he was doing that. So uh, the buck left during that time, and uh, he didn't get the shot. And the cars went by, and, and the buddy said, man, so I, I'm kind of proud of you in a way because, you know, that, I showed great respect, you know, for that funeral thing. But I just, I just can't believe you didn't shoot it. I just, I just can't believe you didn't shoot that deer. And he said, well, he said, I, I kind of felt obligated. He said, obligated? And he said, what do you mean obligated to, to show respect? What, what are you talking about? And he said, well, man, listen. He said, I was married to her for 25 years. He was out there hunting said, well, I like that. I like well, that. I heard that. I about, I about ran down the road. A funny, funny oh, joke. Oh, that is a good one. Yep. <laughs> I didn't know where that was going. So I thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, oh, Travis, that, that is a right, good well, one. Man, I'll let you go. We again, be sure to keep me posted on on what you're seeing, and I'll do the same. I'm I'm getting fired up. I'm gonna try to hunt some. We got a big cold front coming in Friday, and. And I'm gonna try to get on one this this weekend, so sounds, we can make make it happen. Sounds good. Well, good luck and shoot straight. All right, man. You too. And there you go, my friends, another one in the books. Hopefully this will help a lot of you in the woods. We've got if you're listening to this right when it drops, we've got three weeks left of November. Lots of rut hunting ahead of you. So get out there, hunt hard, have a good time. Don't get too stressed. I know I have a tendency that as the as the rut continues every day flips off the calendar i start feeling more and more pressure because the rut is falling behind me now we're seven days down we're 10 days down we're 15 days down you start to worry is it ever going to happen don't be like me (laughs) just enjoy the moment get out there put in the time and good things will happen so until we chat again next time thank you for listening and stay wired to hunt I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. 
hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.